and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And once again, welcome back to Horror Month. And guess what, my friends? This is the grand finale of Horror Month as uh as you've been, if you've been following my episodes through October, you will have heard I've been picking out some obscure movies, some anthologies, some TV movies, some stuff you've never heard of ever in your life. But for the finale of Horror Month, I've decided to give you a treat, a bit of a uh, palate cleanser, as it were. Uh, I'm going to pick a very well-known movie that, you know what, I just want to talk about because I love this movie. And we are talking about George Romero's 1978 movie, Dawn of the Dead, which is one of those universally beloved horror movies. Um, I don't think I've ever met somebody who doesn't like this movie. I have a special relationship with this. My guest has a special relationship with this. And to be honest, I just wanted to talk about a movie that I really love, and I just wanted to get into a good discussion about it. So I'm going to bring back my guest. Uh, He has been on the show before. I think I've gone on record as saying he may be the all-time greatest or my all-time favorite Staff Picks guest. So I'm going to make sure he has a big head before he walks in here. Because he always has something interesting to say, and he's a screenwriter in real life, so he's got a lot of street cred, and every time we have an episode, it never goes the direction I think it's going to go, because he always somehow takes it over. Because, to be honest, he's a better speaker than I am. So, I'm welcoming back to the show, big time, big shot Hollywood screenwriter, I know he's going to laugh at that, but he is a Hollywood screenwriter. Welcome back to Staff Picks, Brian Scully. Mario, I thank you not only for welcoming me back, but also for um, inflating my ego just ever so slightly before um, it comes crashing back to Earth. I appreciate that. Thank you. And it is glorious to be back, aren't I? I think this is the fourth time, which would mean one more, and I can get the jacket for being part of the Five Timers Club. I believe so. This is your fourth time. So you were on for, we did The Village, right? We did The Village, and then we did Arlington Road, and then just as... COVID quarantine of 2020 was kicking in, we did last night because it was just far too appropriate for the setting. Yeah, I gotta I gotta give a little plug here. I I, I know which of my episodes were the most popular and which ones were the least popular. That last night episode was never it never got a huge number of downloads, and that's because I think a lot of people don't know that movie. But you guys should go listen to that episode and then watch that movie. That is that is an episode I always remember just because our discussion was so interesting. Yeah, like the movie itself is wonderful. Everyone should watch the movie last night. And by that, we mean the Canadian movie last night from 1998. Uh, That is, it's such a fabulous film. It says so much in such different ways. It, 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 It is the apocalypse movie where the apocalypse wins and it wins from the first minute of the movie. So you don't actually know where it's going to go. Even though you know the world ends in six minutes, six hours, you know that everyone's gonna die. But the question is, what do you do with that? And that movie explores it so, so wonderfully. If you are listening to Dawn of the Dead podcast right now, right here, please go and download the Last Night podcast. You are, you're going to thank us. Yeah, not only is it a good podcast, and again, all of our episodes have always been good, and I'm, I'm thinking back to all those movies you did. I give you really good movies for a reason, because I know you can, you can unpack them well. But Last Night in particular... We talked about, when Brian and I recorded that, I think that was the first week when America was starting to shut down for COVID. And it's so eerie. I remember that episode because 
we weren't entirely sure how big this pandemic was going to be. Like, is the world really going to end? Are we going to run out of food? Will the stores be empty? Like, people were scared that COVID was going to take over the world and change, like, everything. And the movie is about that, too. So I remember it being so creepy. We were talking about the movie about the world ending at a time when the, the world literally might be ending. So I just remember that being a weird discussion. And I love that you also say that because in a way you're teeing up Dawn of the Dead in terms of how we weren't sure how COVID was going to go when we first started lockdown, which is when we were recording the podcast. But we then quickly saw that many people fell into their same kind of routine and that it didn't really matter all too much what the circumstances were. They were going to follow their routine. And Dawn of the Dead touches on a lot of that same kind of concept in a bit broader sense but it it does hit on how um complacency and domestication even um just for one's own self not just like a like general domestication term how all of that is so ingrained in us that nothing can be thrown at us that stops that instinct that motivation um last night touches on that in a really interesting way, but Dawn of the Dead is all about that. So I I can't wait for us to jump in. I'm glad you brought that up, that these two movies are very similar, because I was just, I don't even have this in my notes, I was just thinking about this right now, that (laughs) it's so interesting that you picked, I I usually let my guest pitch which movie they want to talk about, and Brian kind of threw out Dawn of the Dead, and I'm like, fantastic, let's talk about that. But (laughs) I remember something you said about last night, and it's so profound because it applies to this movie as well, because you said most movies about the end of the world, you know, once the world is ending and then people decide what to do about that, that's when the movie last night happens. And you said it's so interesting. This movie takes place at a time that we don't normally see in this storyline, the once you've made the decision in the after effect. And I swear to God, I'm just thinking about this right now. Dawn of the Dead, a good portion of this movie is. You fought off the zombie attack. You barricaded yourself. You've got every resource available to you. All your Maslow needs are being met. And now you're just bored. So, like, mm-hmm. this movie also talks about the part that you don't often see in the story, the what happens next part. Yes, yes. I love that question. The question of you know, you've survived. Your whole goal was to survive. Your whole goal was to do this. What now? You got it. What's next? And no one ever seems to be comfortable answering that question in real life, but also in a movie like this where they fantasize about being trapped in this paradise, uh, commercial paradise. But now that they've gotten it, now that they've secured it, now that it's theirs, they've claimed it like territory. They don't really know what to do with it. Like they sort of go through motions. We'll, we'll get into more details, but uh, like it, it always does interest me how, no one thinks about step two. Step one is the only process anyone ever goes through. Yeah, and this movie in particular, like only half of this movie is really about a zombie attack. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of forgotten about that. I hadn't moved, I haven't watched this movie in a while. It'd been a couple years. And I kind of, when I was watching it today, I'm like, this movie's a lot deeper and it's got a lot more going on than your average horror movie. <laughs> in fact, there's parts of this movie where the only like emotion I'm getting out of it is, boy, it looks fun to be trapped in a mall. <laughs> like, Absolutely. <laughs> this movie is a blast, and it shouldn't be because this is one of the most depressing movies ever. But like, the sheer joy in this, you know, morbid horror movie, like 
I can't even think of most movies that can match both of those themes in the same movie. Right. Absolutely. It's, um, I mean, that's also just the hallmark of George Romero as a filmmaker. We, we, uh, we Romero lovers have just always been, um, fanatical really about how he tells the stories and how he finds something thematic and utterly buries it. Like he does not beat around the bush. He's not a subtle storyteller. He, it's appropriate that this is a movie he worked with, um, on, uh, worked on with Dario Argento because uh, Argento is in many ways the Italian version of Romero in that they're very big, bold filmmakers and they don't care about subtly making their statement. They want to punch you in the face with it. And um, Dawn of the Dead is the perfect movie to punch someone in the face with the idea of consumerism is the true zombification of society. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, uh, far deeper than your average horror movie. Let's just say that. Okay, to steer it back a little bit to the movie, let's give people a little history because I'm talking about this as if everyone knows this movie and that's not always the case. I know my audience, there's... A lot, a lot of younger people that listen to the show that may not have ever seen the original Dawn of the Dead. So let me do a quick intro. So, what, in 1968, George Romero made Night of the Living Dead, which is the, a lot of people call the first modern horror movie. I don't know if I'd call it that, but it's, it often gets mentioned. If, uh, would you agree with, that, agree with that? What would you call, like, the first modern horror movie? Oh, God, the the thing is, like, I've just sort of trained my brain to say Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. more so out of just cultural acceptance. Like, everyone can just sort of nod their head and go, oh, yeah, I know that one. Um, I can't say any of the slashers because those aren't horror as much as they are slashers. And I'm, I'm just going to make the distinction there. Um, very, very different in terms of technique and approach. So I, I, you know what? I I don't agree with it, but I can't think of a movie I would say otherwise. So I'm just going to, I'm going, I'm going to agree and disagree at the same time. I'm, I'm of no help. This is starting great. (laughs) Yeah. Once again, my greatest guest ever has already been baffled 10 (laughs) minutes into the podcast. No. Okay. I will mention some of the movies I have heard thrown out there as the first modern horror movie. I've heard Hitchcock. I have heard Psycho. I have heard Carnival of Souls. I have heard Night of the Living Dead. I have heard Black Christmas and I have heard Halloween. All of them have all been nominated in the past as being like the first quote-unquote modern horror movie so somewhere in there i think is the correct answer i would say so i would i would say if we're using that curated list um or uh, you know semi-curated list that psycho and night of the living dead would both be my choice like i i would be hard-pressed to choose between them um and they both come from the 60s so i feel like that just in general is a period of time and psycho was 60 i think Mm -hmm. 1960 and night of the living dead is uh, 68 so they really sort of bookends um, very beautifully what can be called the decades like it's the decade that is the birth of modern horror I would say yeah somewhere in the 60s so we, we would have to we don't need a definitive answer but in 1968 George Romero made Night of the Living Dead one of the greatest horror movies of all time just a horrific zombie attack movie really the first zombie movie although again you could argue there's other things like Carnival of Souls features zombie-ish mm-hmm. things but it's really the first zombie movie Big hit, terrified people, was in black and white. And then he never made a follow-up to it for a long time because he didn't want to get pigeonholed as the zombie director. 
But then in 1979 or 78, he makes this movie, the sequel, Dawn of the Dead, which I know you're going to yell at me because I always say I don't like sequels. But, you know, fuck that. This one really isn't a sequel. This is like (laughs) just what happens the next day in the similar universe. It's like it's not a direct sequel, but this is a sequel. Yeah, it's a sequel simply in terms of the timeline, in terms of the chronology of what's happening within the franchise's, um, you know, broader scope. Like, it's a sequel only in the sense that we are not watching the start of um, this zombie onslaught. We are in the thick of it, but still early enough in the thick of it where vague semblances of society are still working, like the news or the government. Well, did the government ever really work? Uh, that's my single joke. It's, it's really more... Um, it's it's not it's it's only a sequel in spirit. Romero never made a zombie sequel properly until um it it really wasn't until his last movie, Survival of the Dead, where he actually did a sequel uh, in some way, shape, or form to a previous dead movie. And that's because there was a character in Diary of the Dead that he brought back to be the lead for Survival of the Dead. Otherwise, the movies have no connection to each other whatsoever. Um, and in fact, he even rebooted his own series because you see Diary of the Dead go back to the very beginning, uh, of what, of what happens right around the same time that Night of the Living Dead would be taking place. So there's, he, he likes, he likes the universe, but he likes doing very different things in that universe. So yeah, this is, this is a sequel in technicality only. Yeah, it's none of the same characters from Night carry over, which would have been hard since they all die in that one anyway. Spoiler. But but I, I, I did see a sentence he said once that he said, see, I still think of these uh, Night of the Living Dead movies as a trilogy. I never really saw any of them after Day of the Dead, so I still think of them mm-hmm. as three. He, I think he explained it once. In Night of the Living Dead, there's more people than zombies. In Day of the Dead, there's more zombies than people. So Dawn of the Dead is the only one that he, he did on an even playing field where there's about an equal number of humans and zombies still left in the world. I would say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, like Dawn, and, and that's really because we see a long stretch of time in Dawn uh, instead of just one night or the span of a few days like Day of the Dead or Survival of the Dead or Day of the Dead. Dawn takes place over several months, and we know this because we're tracking Fran's pregnancy um, as she's only in her third getting close to her fourth month um and she's not she's not quite ready to burst by the time the movie is over spoiler alert she gets to the end of the movie um but she she does show much much more so we do see a progression of things and that like we track it through the tv broadcasts that and the radio broadcasts that go from okay we're kind of still together on this to just a camera with two wild jackasses thrown in front of a, a, a you know, a, the back of a soundstage um, with the, like, like the last vestiges of the station yelling at each other. Um, we track all of that throughout the movie and all the way through to silence when everything has stopped. So it's, yeah, yeah. I would say Dawn truly is that middle ground. We actually see the transition in the movie. Again, I should point out, I'm not really a zombie movie fan. Like, I'm kind of over this genre, and I never really loved it that much as a kid. But I will say, I have always loved this movie from the first time I saw it, and I've got to share a story with people that 
Like, this wasn't one of those movies that I saw when it first came out. I was too young. My parents wouldn't let me see it. It's basically rated X. Like, it's this movie's got so much violence. It set the standard for what you could do in a movie. Like, there's exploding heads. There's all sorts of stuff that they had never did in an American movie prior to this one. But, yep. yeah. But so what happened is I remember I had uh, graduated college in 1996, and I had a job house-sitting for, like, two months at this rich person's, rich guy's house. Right? I had nothing to do. So I just sat there and rented movies every night because I was there by myself. Oh, perfect. Yeah, and I remember one night I just grabbed this at the video store because I'd never seen it, and I wanted to see a zombie movie. And I remember just being transfixed by this movie. I had never seen anything like it. It's dead serious, but it's also a cartoon. It's also comic. And then a large stretch of the movie is just fun. It's just people locked in a mall doing a, a big, long shopping spree where they could take anything they want for free and no one will stop them. It's like, boy, that looks fun. And then it turns into carnage and chaos at the end. And I remember sitting there at that guy's house watching this movie thinking – I have never seen a movie anything like this before. Now, right. I'd like to yeah. know your experience with this movie, because I know you're a huge Romero fan. Absolutely huge. So, uh, fun fact, my mother had rented Night of the Living Dead um, back on VHS, because uh, I am of the age where uh, it wasn't a blockbuster that we had close by, but it was a West Coast video despite the fact that it was New Jersey. And uh, yeah, you explained that to me. She had rented Night of the Living Dead and I was like four years old or so. And I watched it with her. Mm. And like people can say, oh my God, what kind of terrible parent is that? And to those people, I say, fuck you. Um, <laughs> I'm perfectly well adjusted. But like the, the movie's fine. If you know the movie's fake, you, like, it's just like going on a roller coaster. The whole point is to get an emotional reaction out of you. And the movie excited me. And my mother saw it excited me in a way that like, I wasn't traumatized or anything. Um, and so that's also why Night of the Living Dead is like truly close to my heart because that was like my, the birth of my love of horror and especially the, the zombie genre. I had never seen a frame of Dawn of the Dead until um, it was my father who had a, like a, he taped a copy off of prison or HBO way, way back in the day. I forget like which network it was, but like that's, he taped everything off of cable and he he had a copy of it and he didn't want me watching it. I don't know why, because my mother would have told him, no, he's fine. But I grabbed it one day when I was homesick and they were off at work and I watched it and it took me like a good four hours to get through it. Cause I had to keep stopping and starting it. It, 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 it got me both in some of its scares and just the general dread of, of certain moments, but also it, it was just so much fun. I was rewinding it and rewatching some of the fun bits, um, which, uh, yeah, it's it, for me, it was something that I started watching very early. And uh, like, I, I think I must have been like nine or so. So, so yeah, my life has oriented around Romero zombie movies. And Dawn of the Dead was at this perfect time where I was aware of how adults lived. I was aware of what consumerism was, what capitalism was uh, at the most like basic level. And it, it, I was able to see those things in the movie to the degree a nine-year-old can. And that means that every time I revisit it, it's like wine. It has aged even more beautifully. Okay, and to jump on top of what Brian just said, I'm going to drop a little bit of trivia on you guys to point out that 
you are probably the most qualified host I have ever had on any episode of Staff Picks for one reason, and I think you know where I'm going to go with this. Brian, as I said, is a Hollywood screenwriter. He writes scripts for a living. He was once commissioned, I shit you not, to write a remake of Dawn of the Dead. Close. It was Night of the Living Dead, but close. It's just one movie off. Wait, wait, you didn't get commissioned to write Dawn of the Dead? I did not. No. I, I, I I am sorry to break your heart. See, I'm not the most qualified, and you should probably just end the call. I'm so sorry that I failed you, Mario. Yeah, I'm sorry to my listeners to say I shit you not, and then I just shit you. <laughs> wow, I have fundamentally broken the relationship between podcaster and listener. That's terrible. No one will ever trust you again, no. Um, no, yeah, it was it was nice. Yes, you were commissioned to write Night of the Living Dead, so you <laughs> – <laughs> wow, this doesn't tie into my podcast at all anymore. So I'm just going to uh, – okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> fine, fine. Okay, so what was that like? So you clear – oh, never so you So you clearly <laughs> – know enough about the series to have been offered the chance to rewrite. So that's all I'm saying, even though technically it wasn't Don and Brian Scully, you've made a whore out of me. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're adorable. The, uh, to be fair, like it does still tie in and it ties in because the only reason why that was offered to me was because the, it was just a general meeting that I was having. Mm-hmm. And a, and a general meeting is where it's like producer or director or whatever reads your script they meet you just to see what you're like. It's like speed dating in, in the industry, honestly. And it's really just to see who you can get along with and who you don't want to uh, work with because you don't like them. Um, so I was on one of those meetings and that meeting turned into a 90 minute love fest over Romero because I didn't know at the time that that particular producer had worked on Land of the Dead, um, uh, which I loved. So I was just like geeking the hell out. And by the end of that, it turned into, I, I've been tooling a around in my head about remaking night and what we would say now in 20 because this was 2014 and clearly there was a lot happening in uh 2014 um uh particularly in uh the state of missouri uh, that made the idea of doing another night of the living dead and, and doing it like romero did where you take zombies but you're filtering them through a commentary and you're you're telling the audience a story about itself at that time and place with zombies as the backdrop. Um, that's what made it really exciting. And we were moving forward on it for like five years on and off and like drafts were done. Um, I was happy with where it was, but ultimately uh, to summarize, like the studios don't give you the money to do things uh, when you need them to, they uh, will try to just string you along as much as possible. So it ultimately did not end up going for all the normal boring financial reasons. But I did get to write a night remake. I got to write lines for Ben and Barbara and it made my world. (laughs) So, but again, it goes back into this because Romero, because we love Romero and he may be telling wildly different stories between the movies his style never changes, not once. It, it, like every single one of the movies is classically him. You can recognize it from one shot. It's it all ties in, Mario. Don't don't beat yourself up for making a silly mistake. <laughs> Just because it's funny, I will leave that in the episode. So I hope my listeners appreciate that. Sometimes I'll cut that out, but I thought that was funny. <laughs> it's your it's the one and only time you've ever gotten something wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. So. <laughs> 
it's important for the audience to know you are still human. <laughs> okay, let's get to this movie. Now, Dawn... Yes, half an hour later. <laughs> okay, so Dawn of the Dead, um, I want to just zip through this because we're way late on this podcast already. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, thank you, Brian. This was an American-slash-Italian co-production between George Mero and uh, Dario Argento. And I actually didn't know this till I just read this yesterday, that, you know, they kind of financed it together. And because of that, when it went to Italy afterwards, Argento was allowed to make his own cut of the movie. Is that correct? Not only is that correct, but I just realized I forgot to make one of the jokes that I was thinking about making this whole time. And that is you saying, and we're going to talk about Dawn of the Dead. And I would jump in and go, oh, which one? And you expecting you would go, oh, no, no, not Zack Snyder's. No, George Romero. And I went, yeah, which George Romero, Dawn of the Dead? Because there is a box set called the Ultimate Edition that was released like 15 years ago or something like that um, on DVD with the theatrical cut, the extended cut, which is the one that um, George premiered in Cannes. Uh, in 1978 and it also has the european cuts so i watched all three mm. uh again to prepare for this um because i will I, like ultimately it's the same movie nothing is dramatically different it's just like the delivery of its story is very different like the european cut is is very lean and mean it's uh, like a lot of character stuff is trimmed out to emphasize a lot more of the gore it turns into argento kind of that way um but also certain sequences are extended so, like, additional lines of dialogue from the news scene in the beginning, stuff like that. Um, the extended cut doesn't really work for me. Um, it's just, it feels, it feels bloated. It, like, what he cut truly was cut for a good reason. And then the theatrical cut is what we all know. Okay, I know Romero himself has said that there's ten different cuts of this movie, so even he forgets which cut is the one people are talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, and so, and one more thing I wanted to talk about is obviously they remade this movie. So at a certain point out there, there's, like you said, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead, which is a remake of a sequel, which is where we get into really dicey ground. Uh, <laughs> please don't talk too much about this because I want to get into the movie, but do you like that remake? Surprisingly, very much so. And without getting into too much Zack Snyder commentary, I, I'll just leave it at this. I have fallen out of uh his um his, his filmmaking but dawn of the dead which was his first feature movie i walked out of that going wow like as a lover of this franchise as a lover of the original dawn of the dead i like i i'm impressed uh, like it's a very different movie he's not trying to tell the same story but i it, he definitely is able to hit on certain notes that needed to be hit from the original while also telling his own story and it has Sarah Polly fighting zombies. <laughs> like, like just as an indie film fan to watch kid, like little Canadian sprite sized Sarah Polly do something she's apparently always dreamed of, which is being a zombie movie. <laughs> like, it's like it hits so many different potentially contradictory notes in my mind that it actually creates this beautiful chemistry unexpectedly. I, yeah, I'm I'm surprisingly a fan of it. Yeah, I am actually too, and you wouldn't expect that I would, but. It took me a while to grow on me, but I actually really like that remake of Dawn of the Dead. And I shouldn't, but it's like you said, it's just, it's different. Yeah. It's like, I feel like it had respect enough for the original that its point was not to remake the original. We're, we're, we're using the same inspiration. 
and we're going to reference certain things out of love pretty much mm-hmm. for the material but we're going to tell our own story and because of that like i can shut it off in my brain i don't get like on red alert watching it right away i get to just go for the ride it wants me to go on yeah, I got to tell my Dawn of the Dead story. This I don't know if I ever shared this on Staff Picks. My friend Chris says this is my, my all-time favorite movie story I've ever told. Oh, uh, you have my attention. Here you go. So I used to have a neighbor who lived across the street. His name was uh, Chuck, and he owned a storage facility. And the way he made his living was when people would default on paying their, their rent for the storage facility, that meant all the stuff was was his and he got to sell it. So, like, he was kind of an asshole. This was blood money. He made all this money off people's possessions that he got to sell because they forgot to oh, pay their stuff. So, so I was constantly – he was always over there. He had uh, DVD yard sales of all these DVDs that were in people's storage lockers that he was selling for real cheap. So one day I went over and I bought Dawn of the Dead. He had the, the, the DVD of Dawn of the Dead, the remake. And I'm like, oh, he's like, here, here, buy this. It's really good. I'll give it to you for 50 cents. So <laughs> I got it, and I brought it home. And it turns out it was not Dawn of the Dead as you or I know it. It was a Korean bootleg of a movie similar to Dawn of the Dead. And the menu literally said Dawn, D-O-N. <laughs> it was Dawn of Dead, and it had a picture of Mel Gibson. <laughs> I'm like, this is not any kind of Dawn of the Dead I've ever heard of. And it was some weird Korean oh. zombie movie that they just called Dawn of Dead to pass off. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> God bless. So anyway, from Chuck's blood money and his largesse, I was given a copy of this random Korean bootleg, which I have – it may be worth millions of dollars. It might be the only copy of this movie ever. Uh, potentially left copy, yeah, for sure. I would look into that. But what – out of curiosity, D-O-N of the dead? Uh, sorry, D-O-N of dead. Yeah, it was like Dawn of Dead. How was it? It was terrible. Oh, good. And guess what? Mel Gibson did not show up in it. <laughs> See, now I'm surprised. <laughs> you think Mel Gibson, at a low point in his career, was doing a Korean bootleg? Uh, sure, why not? <laughs> I will avoid further Mel Gibson commentary. Yeah, that's uh, good. For being off topic. But suffice it to say, yeah, he could have gone there and stayed there as far as I'm concerned, but that's okay. Okay, so let's get to the real Dawn of the Dead, 1978, George Romero, Dario Argento. Classic, yes. yeah, just one of the most violent, bloody horror movies of all time. But it's so cartoony, and the blood. Famously, <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to delve too much into this, but the special effects guy Tom Savini created the special blood for this movie. It turned out when it uh, showed up on film, it looked like, in his words, a melted crayon. <laughs> and he hated it. He's like, that blood looks so stupid. And Romero's like, no, keep it. It's good because this movie is like a cartoon. So that's why the that's why it's so cartoony, the blood in this movie. And and just watching Day of the Dead back to back with this, you can look at the difference in quality and the makeup and the blood and, and things like that. Just think of how the Dawn of the Dead blood would look in Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead would, would be wrecked. Like that movie, you could, it would be unwatchable, and it would actually just come from that mm-hmm. because it would just feel so sloppy and wrong and out of place. And yet, in Dawn of the Dead, it's perfect. It is exactly the right tone <laughs> by being so neon and not blood-like at all. We're getting to watch. It truly is a comic book. It is a cartoon. It is. It is something that has heightened reality, and 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 intentionally so. It's heightened reality. It's meant for us to be able to take a step back and dock at. 
it's meant to be gawked at. And um, I, I love that it understood that about itself and embraced that. Rom- that's Romero in a nutshell. Romero liked it. Savini hated it. But Romero's artistic vision won out. So in, in the end, I'm glad it did. Indeed. But yes, to the actual movie now. Yeah. Okay. So all for, without further ado, the plot of Dawn of the Dead is thus. It basically starts in the same universe as Night of the Living Dead. It's basically uh, the dead have come to life, risen from their graves, and have started attacking people. Very famously in Night of the Living Dead, they don't really explain why it happened. And much to the credit of this movie, they still don't try to explain why it happened. And that's what I've always loved about these movies is they don't get into the mumbo jumbo of why it happened. It just happened. And that's what's that's where this movie starts. The zombie attack is going on. And basically the world is just in chaos. It's, but still, it's functional chaos. So, yeah, when we start this movie, we're starting it uh, in media rest, as, as we would say. Um, we're in the thick of the action. There's no real setup. We're just. We're like Fran, our, one of our lead characters, who in the very first shot of the movie is asleep as we hear commotion all around her, and yet she's like dead asleep but having a terrible nightmare. It's startled awake, and we learn that she's in a newsroom that's still broadcasting news. It's still functioning as its job, even though things are rapidly deteriorating, uh, both internally and in the world as everything is going to shit. It's, yeah, there's, there's, Explaining it would be a detriment. Going into you know, like the discovery of how and why—that's a different movie. Mm-hmm. That, like that has absolutely nothing to do with tackling ideas in *Night of the Living Dead* of very you know binary black and white thinking, very strong anger to authority and the government. You have the civil rights era um, headbutting against the Vietnam War in terms of the timeline. In Dawn of the Dead, we have consumerism, the rise of super shopping malls. We have the <laughs> rise of capitalism as our one true overlord and how that actually turns us into automatons, walking around, going from store to store, living to buy things from chains that are profiting maximally off of um, its labor. Like just all of the things Romero is jumping in on here you suddenly throw a research subplot into what's really causing this. Literally, what movie is that? Because it's like, it, it would not work. And um, also Romero would be bored to tears trying to make that movie. Yeah. It, again, a lesser movie would try to explain it. This movie doesn't even bother with it. Although I will say as much as I love this movie, this is an almost flawless horror movie. I, I, every time I watch it, I'm impressed by how well done it is. But I, there are two minor nitpicks I have with it. And the first one is right at the start here. And I know this is kind of functional. The movie starts very quickly. And you really yes. have to know Night of the Living Dead. And you have to know that there's a zombie attack. You kind of have to know that in the back of your head to know what's going on in this movie. This movie does not deliver that to you. So I think it would be a little confusing if you've never seen Night of the Living Dead or you don't know. Like, this movie starts so fast, I think it may throw some people. I I don't think it does, but I see exactly what makes you think that and why you have that feeling about it. So it, it's one that I don't think you're wrong on at all. I just, for me, don't necessarily agree. It does, it does give, like, it, it gives just the barest minimum of exposition. If, if you're actually paying attention to the quick cuts of the, the broadcasters as they're yelling back and forth about 
what's going on? Why is everyone so panicked? Like it's it's there, but because of Romero's rapid fire style of cutting, because he edits his own movies uh, at this period of time, um, he's just he just likes punch, 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 punch. It's rapid fire because it's meant to exhaust you. It's meant to disorient you. It's meant to put you in the shoes of Fran, who is our lead character here that we're meeting. Um, so like it, it's that disorientation is necessary, but. I, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that point. It doesn't, it doesn't ease you in just enough before it jumps you off the cliff. Like it just jumps you off the cliff. I get that. Yeah. And again, I can see functionally why he does that. I just, I'm sensitive to this stuff because I'm always introducing horror movies to my kids, especially my daughter. And like when you show this to someone who didn't grow up with the mo- this movie, it's very frantic at the start. And in fact, I can't think of a movie that starts more frantically than this one. So, that's that's the only thing that I just noticed. It's it's tough if you don't if you didn't grow up with this movie. It's a different style. Yeah, I I can definitely grant you that. Absolutely. What's number two? I am curious. Okay, well number two, we'll get to it later. I just think the biker t- attack goes on too long at the end. They're a little too a little too gratuitous with the mayhem in that scene. I think I don't think it needs it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can I can go with you on that. Like the pie fight, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> which like there's a reason Cooper cut that out of Doctor Strangelove because you know what? ultimately this didn't fit, and that made a cartoon out of the cartoon, which a little little too much. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to it later. So okay, so this movie there's really only four characters. It's actually a really simple storyline if we're just going to describe the story to you. It's really just four characters. You get Fran, the uh, she's like a news producer. You have her boyfriend, Steven, who I think is an on-air reporter, if I recall. Yep, he's, he's doing traffic reports in the, in the helicopter. Okay, and, and yeah, basically the news station's going to hell. It all starts with all this chaos. Uh, I think at one point they're telling people, you go to this uh, emergency station. If you're being attacked by the undead, go to the station. But Fran knows the station is already out of commission. It's already been knocked out. She's like, you're sending people to death. That's not ethical. And he's like, but we need, the producer's like, we need to do it, though. We need to keep the eyeballs on our show. We need the ratings. So it's like, she's done with this. She's like, fuck this. I'm not being a part of this death. You're sending people to their death just for news ratings. And I think this is where her boyfriend, Stephen, says, let's get out of here. Meet me up on the roof. I've rented a helicopter. And that's really our two of the four main characters. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, uh, can I also just say that that newsroom sequence was not necessarily relatable <laughs> in 1978 in terms of like uh, an actual commentary on media responsibility during times of crisis. Clearly, it has aged very well, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate that it has aged very well in broadcast uh, settings where we see just how much some—not all, but some—people in charge of the news are concerned about the ratings. They're concerned about the clicks, and if the truth is, suffers for that or is lost for that, oh well. Like that's—it's a complete dereliction of duty. And responsibility, and yet it happens fairly freely now. And sure, perhaps it was happening then too, but it wasn't as obvious or as center stage as it is now. This movie just throws that in as a, <laughs> of course, what would you expect? We're human beings. Who gives a shit if these nine people in this one town die? I, people aren't tuning out. Look at our ratings. I, wa- I wanted someone to also ask that one guy, the director of the station. I'm sorry, but why are you concerned if people will tune? out of your channel if the world is ending 
there's no ratings book for you to look bad about. Like, it's who's getting hurt here? It's not ending today. There still might be one more ratings book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Nielsen put out the new numbers. I can't read them because my eyes were eating. Like, it's... I, yeah, there's really not a win there for him. So I appreciate the the very human flaw of, sure, this doesn't really matter, but fuck it, I want it. <laughs> and and really, it, it tracks, I just realized by saying that, it tracks completely with the theme of consumerism throughout the movie, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. I never once, see, this is why I like being on your podcast, because I'll make my own connections in the middle of saying something to you, like how the new sequence it's not just set up. It actually is teeing up the idea of consumerism in a way that I hadn't realized. Okay. Yeah. This is exciting for me now. I'm seeing the movie in another (laughs) new way. Well, it is fantastic. We did last night during a pandemic and now we're doing Dawn of the Dead during still technically during the pandemic. Oh God, Mario. I'm so sorry. Which pandemic? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't want to date the podcast. This could be, there could be two more pandemics by the time this is released. Oh geez. This is true. Yeah, but yeah, just the idea, again, just the idea that the news isn't necessarily going to be your friend during times like this. They're just going to tell you what is best for them. And again, this seemed rather silly probably when you watched this back in 1978, or maybe not, I guess, because it were right after Watergate. So perhaps the uh, one's trust in the news was at an all-time low back then. But like now in 2022, we've had times when the, you know, the pandemic's out there saying, oh, it, you know, it's not airborne. Don't worry about it. We all knew it was airborne, but they just didn't want to say it. And so, like, yeah, this movie kind of it kind of hits a little harder when you have lived through this and seeing the fact that the news isn't really your friend a lot of the time. That and and that summary of that, like by saying that one sentence, the news isn't your friend. It's something people find to be a very tough pill to swallow. And now it's a reckoning that many, many, many more people than I think at once ever before have started to deal with. Um, the, the idea that the news will lie to you, that the news will deceive you. The news will tell you something, but it's not necessarily the right thing. They'll misdirect you in order to, like, whatever it is their justification is. It's only now something, I feel like, culturally, that is getting the kind of exposure it needs to start making change. Back then, if it was happening, it was quieter, it was secretive. You didn't have an internet to feed rumor mills to. You didn't um, have channels dedicated to mocking other channels. You it, like it was. I hate to say it, a simpler time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just not as much opportunity openly to be a shit. <laughs> well, now it's basically baked into you from birth. Oh yeah, and you can be rewarded for it now. I mean, there's definitely a big reward to being a shit at times. Oh, just throw a couple of lying YouTube videos up with some profanity, and all of a sudden, look at that, you're monetized. <laughs> It's funny. The other thing that I've heard over the years that the pandemic has really changed the way people view zombie movies is that in almost every zombie movie, someone gets bit by a zombie and won't tell anybody. Oh, I'm not going to tell. And everyone would say, oh, that's unrealistic. That would never happen in real life if you got bit. Oh, hell no. You don't like I'm sorry. We just went through pandemic when when people are showing up to school and work knowing that they had a disease and just not telling anyone. I'm sorry. You don't think that's realistic anymore. So, oh, yeah, it really opens your eyes to these zombie movies. Oh, yeah. I guess people would be selfish little shits if they got bit by a zombie. Yeah. Just like we've been spoiled by not having a pandemic until now to to learn these things about our fellow people. (laughs) But something in particular about that that I find funny is that we um, 
Like we watch a movie, we see a heightened reality. We know it's exaggerated because it's a movie, it's a story. And yet in that exaggeration, we have the biggest problem with very normal behavior <laughs> from someone. Like, fuck you, I'm going to be fine. You don't need to know about that. And we're all screaming at the TV. Oh, I hate that. Why are people, you know, no, that's so stupid. No one would do that. And I think the meme said in particular, like, yeah, there's a meme that went around about what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Not only would someone hide their zombie bite, but the person would also be in like the front lawn with monkey symbols banging up and down, screaming, zombies, come over here. I don't believe in you. <laughs> That's, that would have been a good deleted scene in this movie. I don't believe in you zombies. Come get us in the mall. You don't exist. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that is the unreleased uh, Hungarian cut, probably. Um, Romero had very little creative, you know, creative control over that. But yes, uh, I love it. We're, we've been talking for an hour. We are five minutes into the movie. This always happens on my episodes with you, Brian. This is a pattern. Uh, yeah, I'll seek health and therapy. I'm so sorry. Okay, allow me to take over for a second. Do you have anything else to say about Fran and Steven before we move on to the actual movie? Uh, only that I, I can also appreciate that the movie gives us four leads, and we'll meet the other two in a second. But Fran and Steve are the more bohemian kind of leads mm -hmm. in this movie, in that they don't have the training that the other two come with. So the other two are much more street prepared to handle the survival aspect. Fran and Steve are not. They're news people. They're insulated. Their world is only visible really to them through their lens, sometimes literally. So for them to be thrown into this chaos, they do a lot of stupid shit as well. And part of my understanding of the movie uh, that grew over time was accepting the fact that you can take someone out of their place of comfort and they will suck. And that's just the way it is. They will be awkward. They will be bumbly. They'll be uh, uncertain and confused. Um, they'll be like in need of extreme help and handholding. And yet in their place of comfort, they can be the absolute master of that domain. They can be the president. They can be um, uh, the person who designed the thing that's happening. Whatever it is that they're good at, as soon as you pull them out of that, we have to accept that sometimes people are stupid and unaware and, and, and clumsy and awkward. So Fran and Steve are those people for us. They're the people who are the true fish out of water. It's hard to not get annoyed at them sometimes, but they're, they're there for us to yell at sometimes. Yeah. As Steven says, they're the last hope. He's like, I have a helicopter. Someone's got to survive. It's all going to hell with these zombies. Someone's got to get out of here and survive just to ensure the population of the humans perhaps might have a future after this. So that's his, his justification. Mm -hmm. And the planning aspect of that doesn't really go beyond we got to get out, which uh, will come back several times in this movie. <laughs> it's always about getting it done, but never about what will you do once it's done. That's very good. OK, I want to come back to that later. OK, so we met Fran and Steven. Now we're going to meet the other two who are, again, if Fran and Steven are the mo more bohemian, the more average person. Now we're going to get the muscle we have basically two uh, police officers, SWAT officers. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but they are tactical demolitions and guns experts. Uh, these are Roger and Peter. 
who I, I swear to God, I will always get their names mixed up in this when we talk about <laughs> them. So it'd be easier if I said the white guy and the black guy, because that's really the, the way that the movie kind of presents it, right? Because there's racial tension here at the start between them. I, I, I'm three seconds away from referencing uh, the Homer Simpson bit where he tells Lenny and Carl apart by writing Lenny equals white, Carl equals black on his hand that when he checks it. I just don't know names. I just don't know names and scripts. That's the problem. It's I'm going to get them mixed up if I say Roger and Peter. Yeah, Roger and Peter. Roger's the white SWAT officer. Peter's the black guy. Peter's much taller. Roger's a little dude. And at the start of the movie, they're in a hostage situation. It's like a, a black tenement building in Philadelphia. There's some guy named Martinez has hostages. They're in there trying to free the hostages. And basically, it's just as much chaos there as it was back in the news station. This is just violent chaos. It's completely violent chaos. And and honestly, what you just said about what is happening in that building isn't really confirmed. That's just the best guess that you've made, just like I have a best guess that I've made. It's the one part of the movie that's a little on the clumsy side. And frankly, none of the cuts that are commercially available clarify that that SWAT sequence. Um, it just it's as muddled as it's as it is in everything. So I've always seen it as that there was probably some sort of um, report or, or commentary that got to officials that people were hoarding the dead in this building. Like this building was, and, and we see it in the basement where anyone who had turned, their families put them down in the basement and would feed them, which I, th I think is the first time we've ever seen that trope. Um, that's now become a little more common where someone can't quite let go. So they're going to keep the zombified uh, relative, spouse, whatever, um, to their ultimate doom and demise. Yeah, like you said, this is a very muddled scene. There's not really any explanation for what's going on. And it, it does strike me again that for a movie that's this well done and this beloved, this scene is so clumsy, this whole scene, the way it's edited, shot. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, there's smoke grenades, there's SWAT officers. Uh, so anyway, this is how I view it. <laughs> Hopefully I got this right, because uh, like you said, this, the, the details in this are kind of muddled. So you have uh, the white SWAT officer, Roger. He's kind of cool, calm, and collected. He's got some men under him that he he's always telling them, keep your heads, don't lose your cool in there, just follow the rules, you know, maintain order. And the minute they get in the building, he's got this racist guy under him. Willie. Yeah, he just goes nuts and starts shooting every black guy he knows. He's, he just, oh, let's just blow him away. Let's kill him. So the black SWAT officer, this is Peter, sees this racist guy shooting black people, shoots him, and basically glares at Roger like, you got to control your men better. So that's the tension between these two SWAT officers at the start, that the big, taller, calmer black guy doesn't trust a little white guy can, can control his men. And uh, like, there's a moment later in the basement when, when Roger's collecting himself, and then Peter... Um, appears and there's a there's a tense moment there it took me a couple of times watching this movie when i was younger to actually catch on to why that scene even happens it's because uh, peter's holding up his gun at roger and asks you were in willie's unit weren't you and he's doing it as a it's an unspoken test that he's giving roger to see like are you were you cool with that where do we stand? Because if not, my trigger finger is ready to go. And that's why Roger says, um, I didn't see how he died. It, it's, it's, it's his basic way of being the cop, um, telling the lie to make someone else happy. Like, of course I didn't see that. Why would I, why would I have seen that? Don't worry. You're fine, Peter. We're going to be okay. Um, I, I like that it starts their relationship off on 
something that is really tense and and shocking, honestly. Like as a, as a horror movie with zombies biting people's faces off, to me the most shocking parts are always the human parts. That's Romero's point, and it's really laid bare here in that SWAT sequence because Willie, who is the racist uh, SWAT officer, is violently racist, um, and that is it. That is his entire character. He exists to be the spectacle of evil. Really, our first human tasted evil in the movie, and. Uh, it's a very jarring change from the newsroom, which was also pay, you know, full of chaos and panic. But the newsroom was also still functioning. Here, we just have the people in charge losing control the most. It, it, to, it, to me, it's actually the most horrific part of the movie. That is its most ghastly uh, moment, which is why I'm glad we couldn't get it out of the way. Yeah, and I think this is probably the most violent part of the movie, too. There's so much blood and guts and people's heads getting blown off here and people getting shot. And again, it's only a very short minute and a half, maybe segment of the movie. Very chaotic, very violent, but it only exists really to serve a bigger purpose, to get Peter and Roger together in a position where Peter doesn't quite trust this little white guy, Roger, right from the start. It's a, It adds an interesting uh, dimple to their relationship because they're going to get closer and closer to the point that they're like best friends by the end of the movie absolutely uh, and it's also how we get peter out of the situation that he's in because roger as we learn is friends with steve in france or i think actually just steve yeah just uh, steven but yeah. knows friends through steve and uh, uh so steve has told roger that hey come here at nine o'clock we're gonna fly out so roger already has that in mind i'm ditching this ship and Without that, Peter is stuck. He could have ended up dying hours later on the streets as you know he tackles the next crisis uh, as an officer. Who knows? Here he is where he actually gets his opportunity to survive. So he's also grateful, but it's it comes with that wariness, with that suspicion that builds to a great friendship arc. Yeah, it's 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 a horrible scene, but it leads to something that is. Um, possibly the most important character life of the movie. Yeah, this is definitely the heart of the movie, the relationship between Roger and Peter. And so basically we have our four main characters here. Steven and Roger kind of knew each other. They knew about Steven's plan to rent the helicopter tonight to get the hell out of town. So that's really the entire movie from here on out. If these four people who don't necessarily know each other all that well, going up in a helicopter on the roof, uh, loading up with as much fuel as they can, and just basically... They that's the, the the thing about this movie is everyone remembers that is the uh, movie in the mall. They don't have a plan to go to a mall. They just have a plan to go up in the air. And that's really the whole movie. Get off the ground in this helicopter and whatever happens will happen. Maybe something we'll find something interesting. You even hear it like in the uh, in the conversation that's going on between that one wacky kind of dude with a cop hat on. And, and Roger and Steve. And the guy's like, oh, we're thinking about going to the islands. What islands? Any island. <laughs> like, he's just so ready to go to a specific place. And he's like, what about you? Where are you headed? And Steve's just like, straight up. <laughs> but it's, like, there's, it's, it's actually kind of shocking that the, all of the planning went into the act of starting a flight. And not one second was discussed. Where are we going? <laughs> I mean, I think eventually Fran is like, oh, yeah, I, I guess Canada's off the table. So apparently Canada, all of it was up for grabs to them. There's no destination. They just 
go. And you see how quickly that goes to shit for them. <laughs> yeah, it's I was going to say that that's the kind of philosophical stuff that comes up in a zombie movie. Like, where would you go? And that's I remember seeing this movie the first time because Night of the Living Dead all just takes place in one house. So it's pretty self-contained. And now we're at the point in the story where, you know, the zombies are equal to the humans in the world. They're breeding fast. They're killing humans. Where would you go? And so it's you could live like we could sit here for two hours and talk about this, the pros and cons, which I don't want to. But that's the thing. Like the world is your oyster. Every single option is open to you right now. You have a helicopter. You got a tank of gas and figure it out. And so that's really it. That's I think that the next stretch we get here is them flying over. They're just flying over the world, just looking at the world below. And this is where we get one of my favorite scenes in the movie, the the montage of hunters just cavalierly shooting zombies. Oh, God, yes. Explain this one to people. This is a fun one. It really is a an example of what would happen in real life and, frankly, does happen in real life, where the people who thrive the most in this sort of vigilante setting are uh, are the good old folks, the, the country people people who like wear their flannel shirts to work. They enjoy their beer. Uh, they have their pickup trucks and their John Deere hats. They have their hunting rifles because in Pittsburgh, you get to go hunting. Like it's not, it's not survivalism. It's just, it's just, it's just very cold and aggressive. And yet they love it so much because in this montage, we see as they're shooting potentially like their next door neighbor in the head they're knocking back some beers enjoying some coffee petting a dog uh playing a game like and once in a while ducking so someone could shoot the zombies behind them it's it's they're having a ball and it's something that i wish the movie did actually breathe a little more into um and and i'm glad that when romero wrote his own remake of night of the living dead he he did exactly that he expanded this sort of mini culture of the hillbillies of the uh, of the hicks of the backwoods of the <laughs> of the country of the rural whatever slang you want to say about it um they're going to survive the best because fuck it we're just gonna you know grab the shotgun and get in the truck yep i got my guns i can beat the zombies i i enjoy that montage so much because somehow romero makes a culture that i am absolutely not a part of look appealing look fun he turns it into a cartoon unto itself which is magical to me even though it's it's backwoods uh pittsburgh people shooting zombies it's like he makes it look at once fun and ominous yeah i was gonna say the the thing that one of the things that stands out about this movie when i watch it is how fun it looks to be part of a zombie attack for a while. Like, we're not quite to the part in the zombie attack when they, the zombies have taken over everywhere and it's terrifying everywhere. Like, there's a lot of scenes in this movie where if you see a zombie, you can just run the hell right by it because it's not going to be able to do much. And so it's almost like a video game at times in this movie. We're just, you know what? There's some zombies. Let's go hunt them. Yeah, because like it, they're not quite scary yet, and that's that's really interesting in this movie. Because like he's Romero said, we're still at the point where we we have we've reached stasis, where they're equal numbers at this point. So it's not really scary yet. And this montage, it's so silly and goofy and funny. Just good old boys hunting zombies and like posing with the dead zombies and posing with each other. Like it looks like they're having a blast. Yep. I. Like I said, the Night of the Living Dead remake that George Romero wrote but didn't direct. Tom Savini directed it. And I will also defend that movie. Most people don't, but I really like it. It goes into that subculture. It shows, like, the, the food trucks that pull up 
uh, to take care of everyone. It shows like the little interview staging area they make in every one of their little campouts. Um, they they build a, a system in place very quickly for the routine of handling this from when we shoot someone to when we dispose of them. And you see the subcultures within the subculture, even in that one little moment in uh, the night remake. And you get a slice of that here too, where you see how these uh, divisions are already happening there. And frankly, why one, it stops working after a while because eventually they just will turn on each other, but that's human nature. But also it, it makes it, it, it makes drinking Iron City beer in the middle of the zombie apocalypse look like a good time. <laughs> and and I, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, if they had a zombie apop- apocalypse now, I can't even picture how many YouTube videos and TikTok videos there would be of people just, you know, throwing pies at zombies, hunting them, making funny videos out of what you can do to a zombie. Just to the point where it's not scary up, you can still make slapstick out of it. Oh, God, yeah. No, my uh, my girlfriend will um, be the first person uh, to say that uh, one of the things Gen Zers are going to be known for when the world ends. Mm-hmm. Um, is that they go down shit posting it like the the like they are watching the meteor five inches from their face but they will find a way to make the joke out of it like because fuck it fuck it we're all gonna die and we're ruining the world anyway so it's laughing at their destruction is a coping mechanism and it's a survival tool at this point wait wait you and you say you say that's a gen z thing because i would i would associate that with gen x which was me no, it's like it's much more Gen Z now because we're not nearly as versatile and fluent with uh, with meme culture in the way that they are. It, it, where it's like they get their news from TikTok. Memes are like the prime form of communication. All of it is just sort of condensing communication and language into uh, a much more easily and quickly digestible form, and that's uh, that's something that because we've also built the world in a way where the, you know, climate change is going to burn us all to death, but not before we kill ourselves with the zombie virus. <laughs> like which apocalypse gets us first. We'll find out. That's their mindset. Their mindset is there's no world for me. Like there's no money to earn. There's no house to buy uh, with the no money that I have. 90 things are going to kill me at the same time that I can't do anything about because the people are in charge or 90 years old and ingrained in that mindset. So fuck it. What else do I have to do but laugh at the world killing me? Yeah, Gen Z would turn it more into entertainment. Gen X just doesn't fucking care. It's a whole a little different. Very, very much so. Yeah, Gen Z cares so much so that they compensate for the lack of care from Gen X. Excellent. All right, that's well said. Okay, so, so here we go. We have our montage of the hillbillies just uh, hunting zombies, and it's kind of this fun, goofy little. Again, it looks. Like, I, I would love to be there. It looks like a good time. And now we get back to the horror of our four helicopter dwellers looking for somewhere to go. And we get one short scene. Almost the entire movie is going to take place in a mall. They're going to get to the Monroeville shopping mall. But first, there's a scene that I love just because it has my personal favorite gore effect in the movie, the airfield scene. Yes. Are you talking flat top zombie? Flat top zombie. Got to talk about him. Yes. All right. I'll set it up. You can explain him. So. 
they have to land in a little rural airfield and get some gas. And uh, they get there. They're like, you know, there's not much gas here. Apparently, all the other pilots have had the same idea as us. They cleared out. So they're just searching around this airfield looking for supplies or gas or whatever. And <laughs> this wonderful scene, flat top zombie. I remember seeing this in 1996 when I saw this movie for the first time. I just loved and laughed at this effect so much. Explain flat top zombie. So Flat Top Zombie um, is an actor who was hired to play this particular um, hero zombie. And the makeup effects done on him was to heighten his skull to give the effect of his skull being sliced off. Because when he stumbles into this scene, um, Roger is at the airplane, is is at the uh, helicopter refueling it. Uh, But the helicopter is still running. So its blades are still chopping around and spinning fast. Flat Top Zombie ends up stepping on a crate uh, as he's just walking in a straight line to get to Roger. And because he's stepping on a crate and stumbling, he is higher than he should be for a human being next to a helicopter. And the blades literally scalp him. And so you see, and, and it's a great sound effect that comes with the two, but you see the scalp just go whoosh right off to the frame. <laughs> And then there's just a moment of the guy standing there and wobbling. And then the blood starts to pour all around the perimeter of, uh, of his skull. As we see that the helicopter rotor blades just sliced it right off. Um, it's a great effect. They had to animate the helicopter rotor blades uh, to make that work because the helicopter wasn't actually on at the time. That would be too dangerous. Um, and the way they make up the guy's head looks very Frankensteinish. But as soon as you're willing to just accept all of those things, to get the moment of the head just going whoosh, it's 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 art. It's actual art on camera. I was watching it with my girlfriend this morning, who, by the way, would be the first person that you would meet that does not like the movie. She didn't like Dawn of the Dead, but that's okay. She has many wonderful qualities that you know, compensate for that. Um, she, when she was watching, she was like, oh, my God, what's wrong with his head? Um, but in this, like, clearly the makeup is just so bad. And I would, no, 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 trust me, it's for a reason it'll pay off they just stared at it and when that moment finally happened she was just like oh fuck like it it was great it was exactly what i wanted yeah that's the kind of stuff like a kid watches that scene a zombie climbs up on a crate and unbeknownst to anybody in the foreground they don't even see the zombie this is all just comic relief in the background (laughs) zombie gets scalped by the helicopter blade that's the kind of thing you see as a kid and you're like you know what i want to do for a living i want to work in movie special effects i want to do that effect Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is uh, so many people who have like Greg Nicotero talked about what made him excited to like get into makeup. And it was Dawn of the Dead uh, as an example. So, yeah, like as goofy as it can look, as clumsy and rudimentary as it can look because of budget and because of resources, it still is fun enough where you you don't care that you see the stitching. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) You just you just appreciate the punchline that it gives you it's it, oh god i'm gonna rewatch it when we're done talking just because i love it just a whoosh one of my all-time favorite movie death effects and i'm not even a gore hound i just love that one because it's so cartoony and it's just that no one even sees him he's just in the background he's a background character <laughs> <laughs> okay by the way you said your girlfriend doesn't like this movie i will share a dirty secret i don't think my daughter liked this movie either when i introduced her to it Interesting. I think, Interesting. yeah, I think her rationale was it's just a bunch of people sitting around in a mall. Yeah, that is correct. That That is correct and the point. 
Yeah, I know. That's the thing. It's that's the point of the movie. It's from a different time, and movies are a little slower. She's 22, so we we've discussed this. We've we've debated horror movies before, but I don't think she loves this movie. Anyway, let's get them into the mall. I'm gonna skip over a little. There's a couple attacks at the airfield scene. There's not a lot of serious attacks against them because again, the zombies aren't really that threatening yet, but. Now we get to the part, they're just flying around looking for something to do. They don't want to be, you know, be like Robin Hood, fly around stealing people's gas and just being thieves for the rest of their life. They, even Steven says, you know, we got to, we got to, or Peter says, we got to, we got to find our own way. We got to find a place to hunker down and make our own little stand. While pointing out that they need to do it carefully because, oh, you got papers for this limousine? Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys now. We are now the same the same exact vigilantes as anyone else out there. So we cannot be uh, – we, we have to be safe. We have to find some place to go, but we have to be careful about it, and we have to be quiet about it. I, I, I really love that they don't mince words about there, – there's, there's no attempt at nobility from Peter. Like he shuts it down the instant anyone tries to be cozy about it and sweet about it. Yeah, it's just every man for himself at this point. we got to do whatever we can to survive. And here we go to the star of the movie, the genius of this of George Romero here, to set this movie in a shopping mall, which I, <laughs> I, I you know, for you, this is a trope now. There's video games where you're in a mall shooting zombies. Like, this is just a thing. That never existed before Dawn of the Dead. He invented that just because he had a friend who owned a shopping mall. He went to visit it one day, and he's like, you know what? This new indoor enclosed super mall, this would be a cool place to set a horror movie. <laughs> Pretty much. The, uh, the the only other part that um, really had an influence on him going, oh, no, no, this is the movie, is that while he was touring that shopping mall, he saw back rooms that were loaded with civil defense supplies. And it looked like you could hole up there for a good long time if anything happened you can just not even leave that space mm -hmm. and go out to the mall just be right there in the mall it's own private little emergency sanctuary and he said that like the mall itself was inspiring but when he saw that it was like the, the defining moment like oh okay now i see the whole movie in my head i know exactly where this goes and I love the quaintness of when this movie was filmed, where I, I always kind of forget in 1978, big shopping malls were relatively new in America. And so they're like, what is that building? And someone says, oh, that must be one of those indoor shopping malls. Like, I always kind of forget there was a point when that was not everywhere in America. Yeah, yeah. It's because, and frankly, it's moved away from that. Mm -hmm. Um, for in favor of the online space, but yeah, in the in the like late '80s is when I started becoming aware of um, the consumerism and everything. And yeah, malls were everywhere, and they were packed everywhere. Um, and it just it's ubiquitous. But now, looking back on it, it, it we can't even fathom someone marveling at a mall. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a fucking mall. What are you so excited about? Because they never saw one. They just didn't <laughs> exist. The Monroeville Mall truly was one of the absolute first um, large malls made uh, in the country. Okay, well, yeah, let's talk about this. So this is the Monroeville Mall, which is uh, in Pennsylvania. And one of the Valhalla's, if anybody wants to visit a movie filming location, like I've heard people take pilgrimages to this place. I got a friend, Matt, I know when he and his girlfriend drove across the country, their stop, their number one stop they had to stop at was the Monroeville Mall. Like, I, this is the place that people go, and it kills me. It kills me, Brian. 
I have never been there. And I have been in Pennsylvania a couple times in that area, and it never crossed my mind to go to the mall, which apparently is still there, looks still relatively the same. I somehow have not been there, and it hurts me. If it makes you feel better, to give you comfort, I lived there. Not not like in that part of Pennsylvania, but I lived in Pennsylvania for years and years and years. I went to college in Pennsylvania. I, I lived there after uh, I graduated. I love Philadelphia. But that that is the thing where even I living in the same state for years and years, loving this movie, wanting to make a pilgrimage, just end up not doing it because that's a long ass drive. The drive the drive from Philly to the Pittsburgh area, I'd say that's just so much effort. <laughs> like like we people joke about it, but there's a divide in Pennsylvania from the western side of Pennsylvania to the eastern side. Totally different cultural uh, cultures, totally different personalities and and mindsets um, and priorities. It, it really is kind of two different states. And so, I just never crossed that border. I never went west to visit one of my Valhalla's. And you not living in Pennsylvania have much more of a valid excuse for not making it there than I do. You know, I'm glad you think that because I'm about to shatter that impression real quick. Oh, no. <laughs> I was in Pittsburgh two years ago. <laughs> okay, you have truly no excuse. <laughs> it's me and my wife and her parents <laughs> and the in-laws, and we're all in Pittsburgh for two days, and we're just killing some time because we're going up to Toronto. And it crossed my mind, I should say, hey, why don't we run over to the Monroeville Mall, which is not far away. <laughs> I knew that would not fly. There's no way my in-laws would respect me or listen to that ever. There's, <laughs> I just did not have the proper support group around me to, to help nurture my desire to go to the mall. It just didn't happen. And I was right there, Brian. I missed it. Uh, I, am, I am so sorry, but also, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? At that point, I will just say, I'm dropping you both off in-laws. You have fun here for an hour. I'll be back. Don't get in trouble. Behave. Like, no, just get them the fuck out of there so you can drive to the mall. Yeah, I know. How, how far is Monroeville from Pittsburgh? Do you know approximately? I don't know approximately, but it's not. It, it's a lot fucking closer than it was to Philly. Hey, let's go see the Golden Triangle again. No, let's go up the funicular. No, I wouldn't want to go to the giant mall that's like my dream place. No, let's not do that. <laughs> anyway, it didn't It didn't happen. Okay, so the Monroeville Mall, yeah, the ground zero of all horror locations if people ever want to go visit. Still looks apparently the same today. And apparently we're an hour into this podcast, so I can't dwell on this too much, uh, obviously, but... It's really interesting, you brought it up earlier, the consumerism tie-in with this movie. They're going to beat you over the head with this like a hammer. Basically, a, oh, this is where humans came when they were alive, so this is why all the zombies congregate in the mall. This place was important to them. This was, this was their life. And this will be the underlying argument in this movie. Now, when I first saw this movie, I was, you know, 22. I didn't really... I didn't really get that message as much, and I've never liked that message as much. And I'll tell you why, because I grew up in malls, like in the, I'm a total 80s child, and, and I was six years old in 80, 16 in 1990, so I've spent an inordinate amount of my life in malls. But to me, a mall was never a consumerism place, because I never spent a lot of money. To me, a mall was a cool place a kid could go that was safe, was self-enclosed, there was a lot of stuff you could do for free, you could run into your friends there. So I never grew up with the mentality that it was a consumerism thing. To me, it was like almost like a youth center. 
Gotcha, gotcha. I, I, similar experience, but yeah, like I, I was going into high school and then college right around the time that malls were at their peak in my experience of, of people shopping, of people just hanging out there because it's a thing to do. Mm-hmm. You, your actual date will be, let's just go to the mall. And, and, and once I graduated college, it really started to fall by the wayside. Like the, 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 the big mall that was in my hometown. Like it was like the epicenter of where I grew up, totally abandoned, totally shut down. Like I would have never expected it just a few years after I left there where it was still hustling and bustling, but like the the change happened rapidly. Um, But I feel like, yeah, I I'm, I'm also of the age where I, to me, a mall is sort of a a multi-tool in terms of social life in terms of obligations, in terms of, errands that you're running in terms of just having fun you just get the mall was a fun place to be yeah it was the if you're a teenager or a young adult it's the center of a town and for me i would just the most i would ever spend at the mall was like five bucks so i this whole idea that the mall was you know consumerism you know for everyone that's all it was was just straight consumerism that doesn't jibe with my experience at all because i would just take five bucks I could spend five hours at the mall and I would maybe spend a couple bucks on video games. Yep. Most of the time I would be in the bookstore because there was always at least three bookstores and you could just hang out there for free and read books. Yeah. Yeah. And the most I would ever spend money on was like a, an Orange Julius or something like that. <laughs> so, that's, that, yeah. So, yeah. like the message in this that, oh, consumerism's taking over America. These malls are like the symbol of that. That just doesn't jibe with me at all because I think I'm the wrong age. I think you are. And I kind of am too. And I, it, it's a, it's a thing that I appreciate when watching this movie because I know that it is a contemporaneous moment when he's making it. And it's only taught, it's not trying to make a lifetime metaphor. It's not trying to make a, a universal metaphor that you can watch 50 years from now and go, yeah, that's happening today too. He enjoys making slices of life that talk about just then. And so, yeah, it, the instant the movie got released, like that culture was already different, mm-hmm. let alone when we were at our heyday <laughs> growing up or, or separate heydays growing up because we're a few years apart. Yeah, I don't connect to it either, but I can re- at least respect it. And, uh, and, and, well, not res- I respect his, his dramatization of it. I hate that capitalism, um, just grew and grew and grew until them all basically created, um, what we, it, it was, it was the harbinger really of what we have today. Yeah, I mean, this is a little blasphemous. I may get in trouble for saying this, but like, <laughs> to me, George Romero looking at a mall and saying, "Oh my God, what a what a horrible, obscene thing that is in America," it feels like old man yelling at clouds to me. <laughs> <laughs> like the mall was the coolest thing ever. I love mall culture. I love everything about the '80s and malls. And I didn't spend, you know, jack shit at the mall. I never spent anything there. So it's like. I really think the mall culture has gotten a bad rap, and I wish we went back to it, to be honest. I loved mall culture. And again, I so I can accuse myself of looking through rose-colored glasses that my experience maybe wasn't typical. But God damn it, I loved malls. No, 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 it was totally typical. And it's why there is now a resurgent conversation about actual in-person rental stores, actual in-person shopping for movies and and and. Like getting the experience of picking up a cover and actually looking at the art, at reading the back of it, actually holding it in your hand because it was physical. It was tangible. The experience of being able to just go into a store and 
walk out with any any single one of those things that you find and didn't know you were looking for like the spontaneity of it it's now coming back as oh yeah that's we should we should have that that's that's wonderful where, 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 where can we get that? Oh, you mean from all the um, places that did it that you killed because you streamed? Okay. It's, yeah, it, 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 mall is really an extension of that. It's, it, it was a place where you did business, a, a transactional uh, thing happened, but you were also there for the fun of it. It was just, an, you can walk into the video store, look around and walk out. You don't need to spend a dime. You can hang out with your friends there and no one's going to kick you out because, oh no, you're loitering for more than 15 minutes. It's, it was designed for you to be able to just relax, explore. There's no pressure. Go wherever you want. Look at whatever you want. The mall got to cater to everyone like that. Yeah, just as a city center. And again, I can't tell you how many movies I learned about just by going in a video store in a mall. And again, everyone thinks nowadays, oh, Blockbuster, that was video stores. No way. There was a mm-hmm. huge video culture way before Blockbuster. And every, every mall had at least four or five places where you could rent movies. And I would just walk in there and read the back of boxes. So I learned about so many movies without spending a cent or actually watching them, just knowing that they existed. So it's like, but yeah, that's my little rant that I, I hate that malls have become the symbol of excess and like the, you know, the downfall of capital of society because of capitalism. Like they were fun too. They Malls definitely had their downsides to them. I mean, still do because they exist. Um, that being said, the, there's a convenience that they bring. There is um, a social joy that they bring. Like there's the positives really, really weigh heavily here. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you completely. I don't, I think they get a bad rap. I can see where it kills mom and pop stores, which I don't want to have happen anywhere, but the positives are undeniable. Like may, you may not want those positives to exist, but they exist. So malls, malls are not evil. We can both agree on that. I can't wait until you edit all of this out because we're just like five minutes of movie conversation and every sidetrack possible. This happens every podcast with Brian just because I Well, I think we find interesting tangents and I, I think this would be interesting for people to listen to and we'll vaguely get back to the movie. But I'm assuming most people have seen this movie. That's that's why I pick you for more well-known movies. True, true. This is this is true. Yeah. When we sidetrack, it's it's not to the detriment of the movie. And I think we both make sure of that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I know the audience is not being harmed by our sidetracks. <laughs> I just know that I am constantly aware of how many minutes have gone by not talking about the movie. All right. Okay. Well, we'll get back to the point that this is a very simple plot of a movie and I, I could really yada yada over the next 45 minutes of the movie. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, they get in the mall, they decide this would be a good place to hold up. You know, they have all the supplies, all the food, there's guns in there. People may not know that malls would have had gun stores back in the day, probably. So you could get everything in the mall, and they're like, let's get in there, and you know, there's not too many zombies around. We could just kind of hold up in here and make this our own little fortress. And yeah, there's, I, I don't know how much in detail we want to get into into their, you know, journey into the mall, but literally it is, they get in there, they realize they can just run the hell around most of the zombies, and they just board the place up, they get into JCPenney's, and they basically create their own little utopia. They have everything they need, and they're perfectly safe. It's. I would say we could summarize it in one sentence, and it's a sentence something like, though Roger is injured and eventually, uh, spoiler alert, dies, um, in the process of securing the mall, the four are able to remove the zombie threat from within the mall and have it to themselves as a playground. (laughs) 
It is. And there's literally like 45 minutes of this movie. Again, it's 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 there's not as much zombie as you think would you that would be in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's only minor zombie attack maybe for the first hour. That's they're not that threatening yet, really. That and you can take over the mall and we they get some tense scenes where they have to run around zombies, get into JC Penney's, lock themselves in there, but <laughs> Once they barricade, I mean, once they fortify this mall and they basically make it their own, they have their own little paradise. They have everything they need, and that's the part of this movie that I always get across to people why I liked it so much. This part of the movie is just fun. It's them just basically having a mall to themselves, and they can do anything they want, and nobody can say no. It's like their own little private world now. We see Roger and Peter finally, because uh, they, they come from the like little secure you know, secret sanctuary that's uh, back, back, back in the mall. They they find their way to the actual mall itself, the actual um, gigantic corridors with stores lining everything. And they're in a panic. They're like, you're just barely surviving getting into the door of JCPenney before they can lock it up uh, and protect themselves. And like, they're huffing and puffing and like, like reckoning with the danger that they just crossed. And then they start laughing hysterically within five seconds because, wait, oh, my God, look at all the free shit. And it's incredible, but also totally realistic how rapidly the mortal crisis ahead of them <laughs> becomes when they see aisles of free shit in a shopping store. <laughs> yeah, this is like an 80s kid wet dream, this whole middle section <laughs> of this movie. You mean I could be locked in a mall for a month? This is my world. I never have to leave. I could take anything I want from any store ever. Oh, my God. And, again, that's my takeaway from this movie. I'm not even entirely sure this is a horror movie at this point. This is just a fun little romp through a mall for an hour. Honestly, it is arguably not a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Night of the Living Dead, I would say, out of the entire trilogy, is the only one that is properly a horror movie. Like Day of the Dead uh, gets into a bit more of a militaristic commentary, and Dawn of the Dead is is, is more the social consumer uh, capitalism commentary. Night of the Living Dead just pure horror. It's got thematic stuff going on, but Romero just sought out to make I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a horror with every dime I can, and I don't have any dimes, so we're gonna cut some corners, but we're gonna make a horror movie. Yeah, Dawn Dawn is a little too goofy at times, a little too. Uh, just sort of spontaneously reckless, a little too, like, thoughtfully elegiac when we're having them hit the ennui period of being in the mall, uh, to to be like an outright, you know, go for the gusto horror movie. I yeah, I would say we can make that argument. There, there's one moment in this movie in particular that I read is actually quite famous, and I, I, I'm sure you, you're aware of this. So, at one point, they're locked in J.C. Penney's all to themselves. Again, there's no zombies. There's maybe one straggler that they'll find, and, and Roger kills him with a screwdriver. Nice little blood effect out of the ear. But at one point, there are the, these escalators from J.C. Penney, where you go from the top floor to the bottom. Roger just decides, instead of going down like a normal human being, I will slide down the metal part in the middle. <laughs> and goddamn, that looks like the funnest thing I have ever seen in a movie. Just him sliding down this escalator and going, wee, and flying off. And I read <laughs> that this movie was so influential that they had to start putting little buttons and poles on escalators because people would always come to the mall and do that out of in tribute to this movie. Yup. And as a kid, when I got introduced to this movie as a kid, like, that was the first thing I wanted to go do. I wanted to go back to the Burlington Center Mall, and I wanted to slide down the escalator like that. And that was then the first time I noticed, wait, I can't do that. 
what's this what's this crap on the top and the bottom of the escalator why can't i get on yeah why is that crotch pole there <laughs> and instead of like making a wily e. coyote cartoon come to real life i did not slide down the escalator banister like that uh, as much as the movie made it look fun and yeah thanks george romero he introduced us to something beautiful and immediately kept it impossible for us <laughs> to get great thanks but it will be forever documented in dawn of the dead the 1978 movie not the korean bootleg starring mel gibson <laughs> truly the horror movie of the podcast is is dawn of dead yeah yeah i don't know if we're doing this this stretch of the movie justice but again this stretch is just fun this is one of the best times you'll ever have at a horror movie for about 45 minutes is them just wreaking havoc and enjoying the mall and like there's comic relief of the zombies trying to get them and they can't because the zombies are too stupid and slow these are not you know 28 days later running zombies yet these are still the shambling ones but yeah, this whole section is just fun. And you know it's not going to last. This is a horror movie. It will not last for too long. Steven's going to do something stupid. We have the, the the non-SWAT guy has a habit of shooting his gun when he shouldn't or aiming it at someone when he shouldn't. And someone's going to fuck up. But damn, I just wish this section of the movie could have gone on forever. I love this section so much. There is a movie to be made of it just by itself, 100%. It's And it's we're not we might be overselling like the joy of it because it's fun, mm. but it, it's not like goofball comedy fun. It's, it's like a breath that the movie is giving us um, in between bouts of the horror in between zombie attacks in between dramatic moments. These goofball sequences uh, are the palate cleanser in a lot of way, but because they're so exciting and unexpected, they take over our brain uh, more more so than the dramatic moments because we want to slide down the escalator because we would do that if we were running through that so we would do that and yeah it, it, it's it lingers in our mind i think because of because of how over the top it gets <laughs> it's i keep saying this it's like a video game like they're literally scenes of them just mm -hmm. hey let's push each other in a wheelbarrow down this aisle and shoot zombies and hoop and holler as we're doing it like it looks fun i i would love to do that that's a video game i want to play I would absolutely play that video game uh, 100%. I, I'm noticing I'm saying 100% a lot today. The uh, the game World War Z, which I play all the time and I love, um, does not bring that that kind of vibe, which is sad. Like it, it takes itself very seriously. And Dawn of the Dead, yeah, it's it's a serious subject, but the movie takes it as seriously as the people take the real life that it's talking about, which is again. Romero's whole point um but it means that we get to see two guys walk into a bank <laughs> in the mall and open the drawers where the money is and as the still operating security camera takes a an automatic still photo of what's happening they hold up the stacks of money and smile and give the thumbs up <laughs> to the camera like it's yeah it's a kid in a candy store mentality it's just that the candy store is filled with things that are trying to kill you well, they literally are in the candy store at one point, so they literally are kids in candy stores. <laughs> uh, thankfully, they got to the candy store before the, the broadcast announcement over the PA system within the mall made sure to announce, hey, shoppers, if you spend $5 or more in the next half hour, and you need to make sure you do that hour uh, in the uh, right accent, um, we'll give you a bag of hard candy free to take home to the kitties or enjoy yourself. It's... <laughs> 
Yeah, that movie is filled with such lovely little touches, including people doing those announcements who are clearly not actual actors and are probably just the real people who did the announcements, if not all, because they they sound unpolished, rough, and so just down home relatable. I think I read that was actually George Romero's wife that does that announcement. Oh, I did not know that. If that's the tape. Maybe I thought so. She does something in there that's like one of the PA announcements is her. Interesting. They must have. She must have done um, some voice modulation of that because you can. For anyone who does not know what George Romero's wife at the time, Christine looked like or sounded like, you can see her in the beginning of the movie because she's right next to George at the news station's uh, directing console. He is there uh, in his full beard, wearing his traditional scarf, and he's yelling, "Who's on camera too?" and whatever. And his wife is right there, like shouting for people to type up the new rescue stations and like. Uh, he's screaming, where is the new list? And she's like, yeah, I'll just pull it out of my ass. There, they, there you go, husband and wife. Okay, okay. I got to get back to this. So as they're in the mall, they basically uh, fortify the place and they close all the exits. It's basically cleared of zombies at a certain point. And they basically, it's really just them. This is their own little world. And like I said at the start of the podcast, that's what makes this movie so interesting. Now we get the, the part of the movie like, what happens now? Like, like as Willy Wonka says at the end of the, to Charlie, you know what happened to the, the boy who got everything he wanted? Like, all of a sudden they have everything they want, and like, now what? And so you get sort of bored, and I think this is the part where they start to eventually lose their edge because they're getting a little cocky, they're getting a little having too much fun. And this is where they get the idea, we better board up the entrance to the mall with these big giant tanker trucks because at some point in the future, some looter, some looter assholes like we used to be, are going to come in here. <laughs> and so it's uh, Stephen, Peter, and Roger are going to go out and get these tanker trucks and try to board up their entrance. And Roger is going to end up getting himself bitten on the first arm and then the leg afterwards. Yep. With a very terrible done makeup job on the bite on the arm because you it's not only does that actor playing the zombie doing the bite um, rip off uh, a clear chunk of just like it was just like dumped on his arm mm -hmm. like it wasn't made up it was just like no just just bite the whole hunk just go for it. it it looks rough and slapdash not only is that the case but the patch of fabric that is put over it to make it look like oh he's really biting this through the sleeve to rip off it it's you can see the cut out of the fabric uh on the sleeve for the bite and how it's not the right size at all it's like it's like a swimming pool tarp. It's too big for the pool <laughs> by design. That's what this looks like. So if you actually go back and look at the makeup effect, oh, it's one of the saddest jobs <laughs> done in the movie. And it's unfortunate that it comes at the most crucially dramatic moment of that whole sequence. But, you know, small nitpicks. Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk about the sp uh, special effects for a minute, just because since you mentioned it wasn't a good effect, that did remind me of something. So... This movie is the, the the special effects anyway are basically the brainchild of Tom Savini, one of the most famous special effect horror guys ever. Uh, yeah, I can't even name all the movies he's done over the years. Friday the 13th. He's the guy that killed Jason in the final chapter. That's one of his greatest effects. That's one of his big ones. But this, I believe, was was this his first big movie? I I cannot say with authority and certainty, but I think it was. And the reason I say that is because this guy is so famous, so well-known. He is a god in horror movies. 
So Tom Savini was a guy who was known for doing the makeup effects, and I think he was a photographer in Vietnam during the war. He absolutely was. Yeah, so almost every effect in this movie is Tom Savini saying, you know, I saw this carnage and gore in Vietnam. I think I could translate that into a movie. So the effects you see in this movie are so gory and graphic and, you know, visceral and flesh being torn and blood. Like, that's literally stuff he saw in Vietnam. He just wanted to translate into a movie. Now you can see the horrors that I saw. But this, I think, was his first movie. So for every effect he does well, there's also one he blows because he doesn't know how to do it yet. Yeah. You, and, and especially in the, in the carnage sequence in Act 3 when the biker gang is coming around, you, you see certain effects in that sequence that are – there's nothing modern about it. Like we're talking like old, old, old school techniques even for 1978. But because they are so good, that's why they keep getting used. Like the machete zombie. That is one of Tom Savini's greatest effects in this movie, and it's so simply done because it is none of it is a fake head ever, not once. But the way the machete chop itself is done is that the shot starts with the machete that's been cut out to fit the face already on the actor's face. And so the shot is actually Tom Savini yanking that off his face fast enough where you cannot see that the machete is actually cut out to, to fit the dude's face. And by... Uh, uh, actually playing that footage backwards, it just looks like whack right in the right in the kisser that he gets a machete blade through his face. Mm. Um, Interesting. But yeah, you have you have clever moments like that followed up by horrific moments like the oversized fabric patch being torn off um, without like the actor like the actor isn't even biting down. His mouth is just sort of like half hanging open. It's really weird. But again, God bless Tom Savini. Everyone's got to learn somewhere. This was his uh, this was his uh, internship, basically. And I read it was just him, and he had a staff of eight people. And they had 200 extras they had to apply makeup to at all times. They had to do all the gore effects, all the practical effects. He's making stuff up on the fly. I know George Romero doesn't really use storyboards. I think I read somewhere. So <laughs> they're, they're making shit up as this movie goes along. And almost every effect he's doing is maybe the first time that has ever been done in an American movie. And I think I read the exploding head at the start. That had never been allowed in an American movie. You can't blow a head up like that. Yep. Savini's crossing lines left and right in this movie. And that's one thing I want to get across to people. You may have seen a lot of this stuff in movies since, but you did not see stuff like this before Dawn of the Dead. This was such a groundbreaking movie for special effects, for better or worse. You're right on the money. And and to compare it now would be so unfair, because even uh, in 2010, when we're watching the pilot of The Walking Dead, the very first scene of that is Rick Grimes shooting an eight-year-old girl zombie square in the head. Um, and it's not only something you don't shy away from, it shows it to you in close-up with slow motion. So you can really get the effect of the zombie girl being blown back from the uh, 357 Magnum bullet shot into her. Like, this movie has a couple of zombie kids, and when you see them die, not, it's very Hitchcockian in, in that you don't see the bullets actually firing. You don't see any impact. You just see quick, quick cuts like gently in the shower being stabbed by um, Norman Bates. You, the violence isn't actually there. It's, it's done in a more tasteful way. And so as a result, the makeup for certain moments like that also looks a little rudimentary, a little scaled back. Back then, that was the X rating. It's 
it's it's mind blowing <laughs> to think how far we've come in terms of what people are allowing violently to be shown. Sex content, though, no, we can't show a nipple, but we can absolutely show the penis being bisected. What's wrong with that? <laughs> That's yeah. This this movie was groundbreaking in effects, but only at that moment. We cannot look back on it now and make comparisons. Yeah, I was going to say it's groundbreaking, but it's also groundbreaking because it was so violent that you're going to have people start uh, coming down on horror effects and horror movies because Savini and people are going to start up, trying to up the game after this movie. And you had like the, the video nasties in England trying to shut them down. It became a huge problem in the 80s, this gore in horror movies. But yeah, it all kind of starts here with Tom Savini just seeing what shit he can do in a movie and seeing if, if it's going to work. Yep, yep, and we thank him for it because Tom Savini uh, gave us Friday the Thirteenth. He gave us Day of the Dead. Um, he stopped doing make, makeup effects like on set as the primary designer um, fairly quickly, but he basically turned into more of a guru type and more of an educator type. Mm -hmm. So he he essentially had a family of makeup artists who worked through him, who then created their own makeup studios. Like Greg Nicotero is, is a is a obvious answer because he helped co-create K&B effects, um, which has done fucking everything now and is now an Oscar-winning effects house for uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, you have, um, I forget their names, but they did the remake of Night of the Living Dead, and then they ended up creating their own makeup studio as a result. And, um, like, yeah, he, he, he basically is doing the generational growth uh, of makeup effects and still does to this day. He still has, like, occasional students and he'll teach and um he's following the trends of the time so he knows what innovations are happening now and he's not just like the old man yelling at a makeup cloud he's <laughs> like actually still in the mix uh and figuring new problems out for people so yeah tom savini coming into our uh, horror movie world view thanks to this movie um it's truly a blessing despite how much it doesn't work on camera <laughs> Yeah, I think he would be the first one who would to admit that too. We're not really throwing stones here. I, I I've heard him say he hates the blood in this. He picked the uh, the makeup for the zombies. He wanted them to have a kind of a grayish color for their face, but on film it looked a little too blue, so he wasn't happy with it. Yeah. But again, they're just making it up. There's there's no precedent. Absolutely, and and because of the mistakes he makes here, he makes the Day of the Dead zombies look all the more fantastic because. Those are truly like piece de resistance zombies for the Romero era. They are bloated. They are green and decaying and decomposing. Um, the blood is rich and dried and dark the way it should be clinically. Like he really, really made sure to get the makeup right. I love how you describe it like it's a cooking show. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Gordon Ramsay exp explaining his dish to somebody. Uh, this is the Hannibal Podcast. Thank you for listening. You know, it's funny. Every time I'm in a podcast with Brian, there's a certain point where I throw away my notes and we're just going to wing it the rest of the podcast. There's no way I can get through 13 more pages of detailed plot notes when we're at two hours already in this podcast. Oh, my God. 13 pages of detailed plot notes? <laughs> yeah. So, Honey. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Even I don't have that. I know. It's, you, you have no idea how I over-prepare for some of these episodes. but <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It, I mean, it means that we will not run out of things to say. We This will be just like a movie where it's not finished. It's just ended. <laughs> like, we just reach an ending point. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of which, this movie kind of does that. But okay, I will try to summarize. I will try to summarize this plot and do justice to it. So, 
it's when they're trying to barricade the mall with the trucks that the problem comes in. They get a little careless. Roger gets a little, the little white uh, SWAT officer gets a little careless. He's like, Yahoo, kill zombies, yeah. And he just, he just doesn't pay attention. And at one point, he's trying to climb into a truck. He gets bitten right out of the, out of the ankle. And we know this in zombie movies. Someone gets bitten by a zombie. Their time is up. And that's really the last stretch of happiness in this movie is once he gets, he gets bitten, they barricade the mall. They have their one or two last days of fun in the mall. And at this point, the movie kind of stops because it's just, it's just kind of an inevitability at this point that he's going to turn into a zombie. They're going to have to kill him. Their fun's going to be over. And Peter keeps saying, you know, looters are going to find this place. There's nothing we can do to keep looters out of this place. They're going to see our helicopter. We're too visible. Like it's our happiness here is temporary. And that's kind of the message. And yet with him saying that he still lets himself get comfortable to the point where they bring all the living room furniture up to their little hidden paradise. They set up an actual living space with a stovetop. Uh, I'm sure it's only a plug-in, but they're going to be cooking some meals here instead of eating from the ration, the civil defense packages. They are going to be, uh, playing a game of poker with all the money from the bank that they took uh, over fancy bottles of gin and bourbon and, and rum that they have put in special decanters. Like they they go from, yeah, we should be careful. We have to keep ourselves you know, at the ready to full-blown domestication within their prison cell and, that they don't realize is a prison cell until this moment in the end when they have become so complacent, um, so bored with the paradise because they never thought about what they would do once they got in there, that there is nothing to do. And the realization hits them in a, in a, in a quiet, depressing way. It's like the only true quiet stretch of the movie, even though it's got Romero's classic fast paced editing, like you know, lots of jokes are thrown in. It, it is the more melancholy part of the movie. And it, it, it's of course the part that I find the most fascinating. It's not the most fun, because um, the movie has given us a lot of entertainment, even while Roger is being uh, in his pajamas, dying to his bites, being carted around the mall by the others while they do their shopping. So he can go to the arcade and play some games. Like even in the face of his actual death, he is going down uh, to be entertained. Like he's not, there's, there's, we don't see a process of, of reckoning happening with any of these people. It still just is driven by, the choice of I want, I want this product. Why do you want the product? Wouldn't you rather do this right now? No, I wouldn't. Okay, that's that's what the movie gives us, even in the face of death. And I, I think it's accurate. And it's something I didn't think I would say for a long time, but I, recent years have now shown that feels very, very accurate. Where in the face of doom, eh, fuck it, just give me mine. All they want is the safety of the mall, but I mean, to be fair, the alternative is going out into that crap again. So I don't know what they could really do, but I do agree with you. This is the most fascinating part of the movie. Maybe not the most interesting. I love the hedonism of them just running around the mall doing whatever they want. But (laughs) this next stretch, this is the part I think my daughter says probably the boring part where they're just sitting there thinking, now what? And that doesn't really belong in a horror movie. That's why George Romero movies are a little different. This scene does not exist in most horror movies because most directors wouldn't have the balls to have 20 minutes of the characters just reckoning like, well, what now? Like, we don't have anything to do. Yep. They're not. They, that's when they actually stop living and they stop surviving. They stop doing both 
things and they start to just exist, which is different from surviving and it's different from living. And I, yeah, horror movies don't ever explore that kind of nuance. And it doesn't really explore it here. It just shows it to you. It lets you fill in the blanks in terms of what they're thinking and what they're saying, or rather what they're not saying to each other. It's, uh, yeah, not so much horror and not so much excitement, but a lot of actual depth that um, on, on rewatches to me really enriches the movie and, and makes all the goofball stuff that we enjoy so much have a purpose to it. Like it, it's sure it's folly and it's short term, but it's also very human. And to, to let us get to see and experience that whole package. Yeah. It takes balls. Yeah. And to be fair, as they're, you know, discovering this realization that they have everything they want and it's just not really making them happy as they're doing this, they're no, they're listening to the emergency broadcast on the outside. They have still a connection to the news. They hear, emergency stations going down they hear people talking on the news like you know we can't beat the zombies there's too many of them like the realization is as much as they're winning this is a short-term victory everything on the outside is going to hell we can't possibly defeat the zombies they will overrun us and i think this is the part we even hear there's the scientist guy with the eye patch that they're listening to on the radio saying what we got to do is is feed the zombies. They won't attack us if we feed them. Just pile up our dead bodies, our, our humans we don't need. Give them to the zombies. Like, the humans are conceding to the zombies on the outside, and that is coming through to the people on the inside that we can't win this. This is futile. Yeah, uh, and it makes things all the more nihilistic as we get to the third act and as we get to this outside biker gang um, that has been surviving on the road uh, throughout the entire crisis, becoming aware of them all. And we we see our people, like Fran even says it outright, what have we done to ourselves? And and the only and she says that in, in this quiet moment where she just turns the TV off because Steve keeps leaving the TV on hoping for another broadcast, but the broadcasts have stopped for days and days and don't look like they're coming back, so why torture ourselves? She turns it off, he immediately gets up, stares her dead in the eyes as he pulls the, the switch back on and lets the static play. And just her her reaction to that is, what have we done to ourselves? It may have been a small moment to prompt the thought, but really on the whole, what have they done to themselves? They've created their own perfect paradise without realizing it is their prison. They are truly and utterly trapped and never once thought about that key aspect of it. They are trapped. And because they have no real motivation besides the acquisition of their goal, they, they succumb to the ennui. They succumb to the nothingness. And yet, in the spite of all of that, you then have the spiker gang coming and just wanting to break in and take some shit from them all. <laughs> if, they, if, if Peter and Fran and Steve, or really just Peter and Steve, had been quiet, and let these fuckers come and go. They could have closed them all back down. They could have taken it back over and they would have been perfectly safe. But no, Steve's reaction is it's ours. We took it. It's ours. And then he starts opening fire. Like, what did you take, dude? <laughs> like, I love that the movie makes him such a terribly flawed character. I, he, like, he's, he's not a bad character. He is flawed for very specific reasons. And one of those reasons is he can't make the connection from 
one plus one equals two. He can't make a connection from this is now our prison. We should probably not just stay here indefinitely. We'll die just from ourselves. He doesn't make that connection with, oh, they're coming in and invading. Well, this is a perfect opportunity. We'll hide, we'll lay low, and then we can leave safely. Because they're not going up the chopper. They're just raiding the mall. So their way out is not in any danger. And yet Steve's reaction is, no, no, I'm going to fight for what's ours. What's, well, it's nothing. What he has is nothing. And yet he wants it so badly. He just wants the product. He doesn't care that it doesn't actually work for him. He just wants it. And that I, I really, really have taken years to appreciate how even that character choice is part of the theme of consumerism. Not so, like the more we, we've been conflating the terms, but it's not so much capitalism as it is consumerism. And, and Steve shows us the tragedy of that of that singular mindset when he makes the choice to start shooting it's not later it's then that is his downfall and that's and that's the ultimate uh message that the movie delivers and and then we get a shootout it's fun (laughs) yeah i was gonna say let me just clarify that because we just jump from one part of the movie to the rest for people who've never seen this movie yeah they have this paradise this hideout they eventually get bored and then one of them roger dies and this is kind of the fundamental problem in their setup is there are four people one of them dies, and now there's the two, Peter, or, uh, Stephen and Fran, who are a couple, and now poor Peter doesn't have anybody to talk to. Now he's just a third wheel. So, like, their whole dynamic is screwed, and then they hear about these looters on the outside, this biker gang, who start announcing their presence over CB radio. They're like, you know, we want to come in there, and, and Peter's like, no, don't trust anybody coming in here. They'll screw our situation. They'll They'll take our stuff, and... And the biker gang lies at first. They're like, oh, we're we're poor, hungry travelers. Please, there's only three of us. Let us in. And <laughs> As nine people are laughing right next to And Peter's like, fuck that. No, we're not letting you in. And then the bikers storm the mall. And again, this is this is not my favorite part of the movie. I think it's, I mentioned earlier, it's too gratuitous. It's like, you know, we had, you know, 60 bikers and a bunch of effects. Let's have as much fun as we can for the next 10 minutes of the movie. I think it goes on way too long. But the biker, the bikers storm them all, and as Brian said, our three remaining survivors should be upstairs hiding, just letting them take whatever they want, because the bikers don't want to kill anybody. They just want to take stuff. But Steven, the most flawed character, decides to start a shooting war with the bikers because they're taking our stuff. And like you said, it goes into all the stuff about consumerism, what it does to your brain, and a lot of deep themes in this movie. But the entire rest of the movie is basically a shootout between these 60 bikers who have been basically a professional army have been out surviving on their own with all these high-grade weapons against basically just Peter and Steven sniping at them from the roof. And it doesn't go well, as you would imagine. It absolutely does not. And because Romero's whole point in any dead movie is that the zombies are never, ever, 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 ever actually the real crap. Ever, ever, ever. The zombies are window dressing. They are the prompt to make people turn against themselves. And so when at the beginning of the movie, Fran drives that home when uh, someone says, I think Foster's right. We're losing it. And she goes, but not to the enemy. We're blowing it ourselves. And that's a wonderful human condition that has been consistent since time immemorial. We will fuck our own shit up better than any monster can. Because um, we are actually the monsters. Yay. Fanatic um, ideas that have been played for decades. So when we see the shootout happen, yeah, the zombies are there, but the humans are making it about themselves. 
And it's because of that that the zombies are able to overwhelm both sides. Because, like, how do we do this? How do we do this? And this is me, you. This is me asking you an actual existential question. How do we keep doing this and not learn the lesson? We do it century after century. And yet we never, ever learn the lesson of when we turn the guns on each other, all we do is hurt each other. No one wins. And if you think you are going to win a revolution of some kind, cool, there will be another one down the road and maybe another one after that. There's a great Doctor Who speech that um, goes into this concept of you can keep like trying to win. You can keep trying to claim and conquer, but eventually you will lose a fight that you pick and then you'll be left with nothing and is going to battle is going to war is defending like a a toy a piece of property just is 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 bloodshed really what's going to solve that for you we never learned that lesson and this movie makes it a key part of not only its thematic storytelling but also the driving force into what makes act three so perilous um because this gigantic biker gang filled with weapons up the wazoo should have no problem with the few dozen zombies that are now wandering around. But the instant Steve pulls his trigger to continue claiming what he says is his, no one pays attention to these zombies anymore. No one pays attention to the dead hulking figure grasping at your neck and taking a chunk out of it. They kill themselves because they are too concerned with each other. And how do you die at the hands of a shambling weak 0.2 mile per hour hulking figure that you that the remake says quite perfectly you can just walk right by them your solution is just walk past them and the more you concern yourself with your petty grievances and problems with each other that aren't relevant whatsoever to your survival the faster you fucking die to the thing you could just walk past and it's it's amazing that this finale goes from throwing pies in zombies' faces to, oh, get your hands off my money that I can't spend anymore for the rest of my life. Yeah, they have enough money to last them forever. Anybody in this mall, and they're all fighting over it. Like, who who are you spending that money on? Who is going to take your currency in the future? And I, I do think it's very funny, as you said, that the the biker gang is shooting at the, the people in the, the roof. They're all shooting back. Meanwhile, as they're shooting each other, the zombies are walking up and biting them in the neck. Yes, they're 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 getting a a complete buffet presented to them, just a bunch of nice, warm, living bodies that don't seem too concerned. And it's really interesting that you brought that up because I never put two and two together that, you know, in later zombie movies and God bless, there's been some really good zombie movies over the years. But the focus has always been we have to make the zombies run. We have to make them more menacing. We have to make them scarier. George Romero couldn't give a shit about that because the zombies are almost incidental to the movie. One thousand percent. Yeah, the movie is just humans will turn on each other at the first sign of, of a panic, which, oh, wouldn't have seen that through COVID or anything recently. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a total shock. I never, never in my life could have conceived it. Yeah, but that's, again, that's the thing that everyone in the future, when they make more zombie movies, just wants to focus on the zombies, making them more threatening, where <laughs> Romero is telling a completely different story. He's like, no, you're missing the whole point of my movie. The movie is the zombies are a minor threat still, and people will still turn on each other, which I, I'm i really glad you brought that up because I think that's a really good argument. You you also see it play out a little a little tiny bit in Day of the Dead, even though in Day of the Dead um, we get the estimation that it's 100, uh, like 
300,000 zombies for every one living person left in the world, which if you do that math, oh dear, uh, that's not much. And yet there are still so many zombies spread out that the, the escape that our heroes get to make um, when they're trapped in certain doom is to just walk right fucking by the zombies because like yeah, sure if there's like four of them you can kill one of them if you need to but for the most part just shimmy around the side and you're good and yet the people who are the gruffest who are the most territorial who are the most um concerned with their petty human grievances are the ones who fall prey to the easiest predators i love it i, I love the tropes because it, frankly for someone like me who loves zombie movies it doesn't get old <laughs> Because there is always a new way to explore a human being being a dumb shit. <laughs> there are always ways that you can explore the human condition of nonsensical bat shittery by throwing them in a zombie situation. <laughs> yeah, what I would have loved is the last scene in this movie. If you have Fran and Peter and they're being, you know, zombies have taken over the mall again. All the bikers are dead. The zombies have, have won the day. And it's Fran and Peter going up to the helicopter. And I just want to see... Like one of them say, well, we can't share a helicopter because I'm Catholic and you're Jewish. <laughs> like, that would be so fitting for this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, totally not out of place at all. <laughs> and now we get a bar joke. So, yeah, it's, I mean, oh, we haven't even touched on the ending and how the ending, uh, as, you know, bleak and then hopeful as it gets, uh, how the original ending is so much, so, so, so much darker. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. Okay. So yeah. So as Brian said, the the basic gist of any uh, zombie movie is the humans are always the enemy. Uh, we, I mean, he asked why people are always turning on each other in in the cycle of history. This will always happen. Humans face a crisis and just turn on each other. Why do we not learn our lesson? Uh, you could make the argument that the whole uh, war games, the only winning move is not to play, Professor Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we get to the end of the movie. The biker gang has been driven off. Poor Steven has died, been turned into a zombie. It's just Fran, the pregnant woman, and then uh, Peter, the big, tall, black SWAT guy. They're the only two left. And they have to make a choice at the end of the movie to either climb up in the helicopter and fly away from their mall that has now been taken over by the zombies and infest, infested or whatever, and Peter, at this point in the movie, chooses he doesn't want to go. He's like, you know what? There's no hope. The world's going to end. And he just retreats into the back room, puts a gun to his head, and he has decided he's going to kill himself. And so Fran goes up to the roof. At a certain point in this movie, her boyfriend Stephen has taught her how to fly a helicopter. She could theoretically fly to safety and to greener pastures, to the next mall, whatever in the future they're going to go to. <laughs> and she stands there on her helicopter and the zombies are coming up after her, and she has to make a choice. Now, in the version we see, the movie we see, Peter decides not to kill himself. He runs up, he punches a bunch of zombies, the heroic movie music plays, he joins Fran, they fly off to safety to wherever the hell next mall they're going to go find. <laughs> but, as you said, that was not the original ending. And I have to say I'm very interested in this because I think the original ending is much more fitting for how this movie should have ended. If you had asked me, would I have agreed with the original ending more mm -hmm. sometime like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, my answer would have been no. Now my answer is yes. And my answer is yes, because the movie is just all, it, I, we are too close to its accuracy for me to see no other ending than tragedy. Okay, wait, well, hold on. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. Explain to people what the deleted ending was. 
So, um, I don't know if he thought he needed to meet, uh, meet an expectation from Night of the Living Dead where everyone dies in that, but Romero's original ending, and I read the script, all 400 pages of it. He typed that script in a very weird format. It was strange. But um, in the script, and they shot it, and they ended up throwing it out, the ending he originally had was that Peter goes into the room, he puts the gun to his head, Fran opens the door of the helicopter, he, she looks out and sees the zombies starting to come to the rooftop following after her. And Peter actually does shoot himself in the head. We don't see it in this, uh, because in the script that it's just very clearly outside of the room, we hear the gunshot. And then it cuts back to Fran and Fran decides, I don't want to do this alone. So she sticks her head in the fucking helicopter rotors. She decapitates herself. <laughs> and so the end of the movie is designed for that to be the last shot. You see her headless body fall. The zombies, you know, start to swarm it. And then you see real time play out over the end credits. And at the very end of those credits, the helicopter sputters out and dies because it's run out of fuel. So at the very end of the movie, we learn for all the hemming and hawing, they could have gotten three minutes of flight time. <laughs> If they needed to escape, that is all they had left, which is like, if you want to make an argument and compare uh, the ending of Night of the Living Dead to the ending of Dawn of the Dead, I would say that the ending of Dawn of the Dead, as originally written, would have been bleaker. That would have been a darker ending, and the ending tonight is pitch black dark. <laughs> Why don't you explain for people who don't remember? Because I love the Night of the Living Dead ending, but people may not be familiar with it if they're younger. The original ending of Night of the Living Dead is that our hero, Ben, has been saying all along we should board up the house and keep you know safe up here and fought to the death the guy who was claiming the downstairs basement as the safest place to go. Um, ben ultimately has to survive by going down into the basement and doing exactly what the villain told him was the safest thing to do. He survives the night, and he's the last survivor of this house of people that we meet. And as he rises out of the house... Uh, out of the basement of the house and he's like looking through windows very carefully because he can hear ruckus, he can hear dogs barking he can hear commotion so people are outside clearly but he's unsure of what their intentions are what's really going on then we see from the perspective of these vigilantes these roamers of uh, people who just like the hillbillies they've got their guns, they've got their beer and you know they're just going to clean up some trash that's walking around uh, and we're their neighbors so Ben is shot at the very last moment by one of these vigilantes because the vigilantes see some movement in the house up ahead, which is Ben, like carefully looking around, seeing who is out there. And you just hear the sheriff go, go ahead, hit him right between the eyes. The, the partner shoots, Ben is hit between the eyes, Ben is killed. And it cuts back to the vigilantes and they're like, good shot. All right, go, go get him. That's another one from the fire. End credits play. Like, it's so jarring and shocking. And at the time, it, it was, it blew people's minds. It was depressing as hell. The ending of Dawn, if he made the original, would have been worse. <laughs> and by worse, I mean so much darker. Well, I mean, that's the thing. The whole point of a George Romero zombie movie is that humans are the enemy. We're doomed. We can't win. We will always sabotage ourselves. I really think this movie deserved that darker ending because that's his message. Yeah, yeah. Up to and including the helicopter really only having like three minutes of fuel left. 
Like it's, it, it all tracks if you put that original ending in throughout the rest of the movie and all the little beats that play out. It fully falls in and, and fits like a glove. Like the ending here works, but the original, I feel like the movie is something that it built up to that. It built up to that original ending and then yanked it away. Yeah, I read that uh, the original, the flat top zombie, our buddy, our favorite effect, that was supposed to foreshadow what happens to Fran at the end. That's the whole point of it. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, so it's almost like Romero, He, it was a good ending. That's the story he's telling. It's futile. The humans can't win. We are doomed as a, as a species. That's that's every George Romero zombie movie. That's I'm not making this up. This is how they all end. And he just kind of wimped out a little bit. I think I read somewhere... He liked this movie so much. He liked his character so much. He was having so much fun filming it. He's like, you know what? We can't do this to our audience. We got to give him a happy ending on this one. Yeah. And like, I, I understand why he did that, but I don't think the movie earned that. Agreed. Agreed. It's, uh, yeah, like I said, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't not work for me, but the original ending, as dark as it is, is what the movie actually is building towards. You're 100% correct. It, it it, it's 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 crafting the environment for us to watch these two characters make that suicidal choice, and we understand it um, because we've gone through that same uh, journey of ennui, like initial excitement, followed by just bored melancholy, followed by fanaticism about what what is killing you. Like you need to keep it. Why? Because you have it. If you didn't have that, you'd have nothing. Is this better than nothing? Well, this is at least something, so I guess it's got to be better than nothing, even though it's killing us from the inside out. It's the movie so works with Fran <laughs> going the way of Flat Top Zombie and Peter uh, just quietly in his in his room, like, yeah, I'm sad that we didn't get that ending. I wish it had been on DVD or a Blu-ray and found in some footage vault somewhere, but I, like, I I don't think Romero really was at the point of keeping. Uh, anything that he was cutting. I read somewhere that there's a, still a controversy to this day if it was ever actually filmed, that I know Savini has said it was, Romero said it wasn't, and then later Romero changed his mind and said, yeah, he, we did film some of it. So, again, it's this big controversial ending. I personally wish they would have kept the darker ending because it does fit the tone of all the Night of the Living Dead movies, but I am also not a Hollywood director who is creating a product for people and likes my character. So I can see why he might have wanted to back off a little. I personally wish he wouldn't have, but who knows? I mean, I, I, again, it's not my movie. Also, one small detail that I, uh, I we skipped over, because frankly, like the middle of the movie, once they've claimed the mall, does get you know into a much more character-based thing, and it's not so much plot. Um, something that I think is really clever and smart about how they secure them all for themselves is how they realize, oh, if we just use the ductwork, the, these air conduits to get to and from the back area, we can actually keep anyone from knowing that the back area exists by building a false wall in front of the staircase. And um, I love the cleverness of that. I love that they can hide in plain sight like that and no one would be the wiser. And I also love how we set up that zombies are coming to the mall because it, this used to be an important place in their lives. So there's like a sense memory that's driving them here for no other purpose than just it's keeping their feet going. And that is exactly how we see the downfall of their little paradise happen. Because Steve, once he's attacked uh, and zombified, 
returns to the place that meant so much to him in his life. He went back to that false wall that they that he himself built and tore it down, biting through it essentially, because he knows he knows somehow in some way, unconsciously, primordially, that what he wants is in there. And without him doing that, Fran and Peter could have kept living in that little sanctuary for months and months and months, even with them all overrun. No one would have been the wiser. That is a great point that I actually did not even ever catch until I watched it this morning. <laughs> and like, oh my God, that's the whole point of the movie. The zombies are driven by instinct and memory. And Steven living up there, he knows that's where that false wall is. I, I never even crossed my mind the whole instinct thing was brought home in that last scene. That's That's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. And can we also give a special shout out to uh, David M.G. who plays uh, Stephen. His zombie walk should be like that is a doctorate level course (laughs) in zombie walking. And sadly, it's also something that you can use as an example of the difference between the extras that would come in to do a Romero zombie movie just for the love of it, just because they loved Romero. They loved the movies and yeah, we want to be a zombie. So they don't really know what they're doing acting-wise or movement-wise. They're just, I'm going to be a zombie. And so you get zombies like the nurse zombie whose arms are just actual, like, perpendicular to her body. She's Frankensteining. Yep. You have the uh, you have the guy who grabs the rifle and is like, and just, that's it. That's his new favorite thing. He doesn't care about actually eating anyone anymore. Like, everyone makes their own weird little choices. They all work in their cute little ways. But David M.G., when he does his zombie walk as Steven is it, it looks so painful to do. It looks so awkward. It looks so shambling. It looks like he was just reborn, uh, but with nothing to work the meat, the body was just, there's just a motor instinct driving it and it looks, <laughs> and I, I like it, it's art. It's true zombie art. And I wish uh, him, uh, all the respect in the world to be thrown at him for giving us the the paradigm of zombie behavior. Yeah, for, for what Brian's talking about, if you don't know, this is the lead act, one of the main actors, one of the four, Stephen, the boyfriend of Fran. He gets zombified, and he, when he emerges from the elevator as a zombie, his leg, his one of his legs is twisted almost all the way inwards. I don't know how he walks around without dislocating his knee. It's the most painful thing. Mm-hmm. And, and he does, like, trip actions doing it. Like, he's tripping over another zombie body as he's doing that, and he's stumbling. He's he's turned his leg in so that his foot is angled weirdly, and while his foot is angled weirdly, he's walking on the wrong edge of his foot. It's like, truly, his ankle should snap. It is terrifying. And yet he makes it, it – it's, it's like a circus performer at work. It's just a body control thing. He's doing that shouldn't really be happening and yet he's pulling it off and it sells the idea of the zombie in a way that nothing else to me in the movie does like the zombies are truly these weird pancake makeup set dressing and then here comes steve and i'm terrified i'm terrified of him as a zombie like he scares the shit out of me and he did it this morning when i was re-watching it and the elevator door opens and you see the reveal and it's just like Oh my God. It's like, it's, it's like he's acting his heart out and it works. No, I agree. And George Romero, I think has said the same thing that that guy's the greatest zombie ever. Although I should point out a little logic flaw I noticed. He's in an elevator. He gets eaten by zombies 
And when he emerges, why the fuck is his leg turned around? At what point does the leg get turned around when zombies eat you? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, I don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. Thank you, Lucille Bluth. Yes. <laughs> you, you're welcome. I mean, if we want to talk like little goofs and errors, this movie is so overripe with them. Like, I'm sorry, but the shot uh, in the hallway as they're like very initially getting into the mall and um, Steve is trying to run to Peter and Roger and there are zombies in between them. There's a shot of the hallway that then cuts to another shot of the hallway from not quite the same angle, but like only a five degree difference. And the zombies in the shot, some of them disappear. Some of them turn the other direction. (laughs) There's another moment like early in the movie where we see the, the parade of rednecks going around in the field and like shooting everyone with beers in their hands. There is a car, an abandoned car in some field and a few zombies are near it. They shoot one of the zombies dead and two other zombies are walking around the car. They're shooting at the car to explode the gas tank. And when it cuts back to the gas tank, like three seconds later, all the zombies have disappeared. <laughs> and the dead zombie body that was just shot and dropped in front of the car, gone. <laughs> it's it, it was just a figment of imagination, apparently. The movie is loaded with so many continuity errors. And that is just because George Romero filmed guerrilla style for the most part. And, and was also someone who loved shooting coverage. He just got coverage, coverage, coverage. And for anyone who doesn't know, coverage is just how you shoot the scene, from what angles, what are you showing, and when are you showing it. He loved getting shots everywhere. His concern about cutting them together, even though he himself was the editor, not as important as just (laughs) sometimes he just wanted to get a shot. And if it didn't end up flowing well in the cut, he'd find a way to make it flow well. And if he couldn't find a way to make it flow well, eh, fuck it. (laughs) That's how he felt. I read somewhere on the IMDb trivia that apparently there's one shot, and I can't find it. It's during the truck scene when they're jumping into the trucks and loading the trucks. Apparently, if you look close, there's one zombie in a red shirt who forgets to be a zombie, and you notice him tucking in his shirt for a second. Yes, yes. There are, there are so many little moments like that in the background with the zombies as well. It's, if you rewatch the movie just looking for goofs and weirdness, you, you could be like you could watch the movie a dozen times in a row and catch new things every time. I was, I was catching new things today from one of the zombies in the mall um, when they were uh, going up the escalator in one of the shots. There are several shots of it, but one in particular. Like, there's a certain facial thing happening on one of the zombies. It's like, oh, you didn't know they were shooting at just yet, <laughs> did you? Oh, okay. But it's okay because the movie cost, like, the budget for it was a slice of cheese and a Ritz cracker. They made it out of the goodness of their hearts, frankly, because they didn't have the money to pay. Uh, for much of anything else. So uh, it's a slip dash kind of uh, production, but it works because the heart is there. And so all these little goofs and errors and continuity issues and stuff like that, some people can take them out of it. Like for my girlfriend that took her out of it, um, which I totally get. Like sometimes if the, if the, if you can see the stitching of the movie and it throws you off, it throws you off. Um, but to me, it, it brings a certain sort of whimsical, sort of comfortable quality to it. It feels like a made-at-home movie. It makes it more charming. That's what it does. Charming is a good word. That's a word I wish I had thought of. Charming is perfect. <laughs> if there's one, there's a difference between me and you is that you come up with 150 words for one word, and I came up with charming. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, for anyone who has ever received an email from me who's listening, this is how I write my emails, too. They are long. They are rambling. They are full of parentheticals because that's an ADHD brain for you. Um, like, I don't know how to summarize something unless I'm getting paid to do the summary. <laughs> and then I can be like, I can say like uh, a novel in five words. But if I'm just on my own, if I'm operating on my own volition, yeah, I, I don't know how to form a thought to save my life. So, it, you know, Mario does a lot of editing in these podcasts with me. Let's just put it that way. Long episodes, a lot still cut out. Oh, yeah. No, I love having Brian on as a guest because everything you say is very well thought out, very well explained, very intelligent. You make a great point in everything. And it's a nightmare to edit because I try to keep these episodes to two hours or under. I will tell people our raw audio in this is about 240 right now. And and my AirPods are at like 10%, no, like 8% battery right now. So my ticking clock is now imposed. Yeah, the podcast only ends when Brian's battery ends. That's when the podcast <laughs> – and again, it's, I love having you on, but it's it's so challenging because you – I can tell you write for a living because you have these very well, well thought out thought processes. And I don't have that. I'm very succinct. I'm like, oh, this movie, you know what's fucking awesome about this movie? It would be awesome to live in a mall. Like, that's my thought process right there. <laughs> <laughs> and you can go on for 20 minutes on all the themes and the depth. And I don't I don't think that way. But it's, again, it's just really interesting having you on. I'm really glad we get a chance because Brian and I don't talk that often. We don't, our, our paths don't cross in life all that often other than staff picks, which is kind of a neat way for us to basically have a forced conversation. Yeah. It's, it's good for catch up and we're both introverts. So the fact that we go stretches of time without talking for us is a feature, not a bug. Um, I, and I appreciate that we both understand that and we both of us have no judgment over it because why would we? Yeah, no, I think you and I both have a lot of admiration for each other. We're incredibly different, but mm -hmm. again, it's fascinating just hearing, I think, our two thought processes meld on this stuff, and I hope our listeners enjoy this. I mean, you're just literally just listening to me and Brian having a, re a reunification after like a year and a half of not talking to each other, but it's like, hey, you guys get to hear it. <laughs> uh, I hope I haven't bored any of you, because if... Uh... Yeah, I never thought about it. We do divert so much from the topic at hand, even though we're creating ancillary topics that are important. Um, we, it's definitely more a Mario and, and Scully show uh, than it is a Dawn of the Dead podcast. Yeah, honestly. And again, you and I could go on. I, I could tell. I can tell you right now. You and I could do a podcast for an hour and a half just on mall culture. We could do an hour and a half podcast on that. That wouldn't be a Staff Picks episode, but I bet it would be interesting to listen to. Oh, for sure. And frankly, it would also give me an excuse to praise one of my favorite things about old school malls, which is that ghastly 80s fuzzy wallpaper stuff that would be put on all of the food court walls in every mall I've ever gone into that um, was designed in the 80s. Like that kind of disgusting nostalgia. That's, you know, that's what life is all about for me. I, I could go for half an hour on just those alone. Okay, in the interest of time and in the, the <laughs> we yeah, will, yeah. in the interest of the definition of what a podcast is, we will stop here soon. But again, Brian, I just want to uh, thank you for stopping by and joining me again. I know we don't really do enough episodes or projects together, but it is not a coincidence that I always give you the movies with the most depth, the deepest themes, and the ones that I really want to talk about the most. So, I mean, that that's not a coincidence. I save movies for you. I uh 
I'm working on accepting compliments. So it's hard for me to say thank you, but thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Even though I also have in the back of my head this hope and dream that someday there will be an episode of Staff Picks where we talk about a comedy. But I, maybe, maybe someday. But if I get the good stuff, that's, that's like a champagne problem. Like, oh no, you mean I have to talk about something that has meaning and interest and value that I appreciate? Oh, whatever will I do? I swear I made this joke last time on last night. I, I, I can I would not forgive myself if I hadn't made this joke. But yes, coming next time, Brian Scully will be joining me for an Adam Sandler comedy. Oh, dear God. <laughs> hey, you asked for it. Oh, I didn't ask for that. This is very much the meme of I want this. OK, here it is. Hang on, though. <laughs> OK, OK. Well, I got to sign off. Uh, do you have anything you got to plug, anything you're working on? I'm not entirely sure what you do for a living other than screenwrite. You... Brian lives in a shadowy lurking world that I'm, I don't quite understand. Oh, no, not really. Just uh, I got to be part of the production team who did Shadow and Bone uh, recently. So uh, please, when Shadow and Bone season two premieres, uh, which will be likely in the first uh, few months of next year, of 2023. Uh, please do check it out. It's going to be a wonderful season. All right, do that. And once again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, this will wrap up Horror Month here on Staff Picks. I hope you guys like my selections and you like my episodes. I had a good time talking about them uh, and ended on a big one here. This is a, obviously a little more well-known, but I just thought it would be an interesting discussion. And once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I will probably be in a mall, assuming I can still find one. I will talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Bye.